0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Dialogue Choices podcast. It's been a few weeks for the usual reasons. Uh, this week, Colonel has COVID, and Andrew is in Europe, so instead, I am joined by two furries. We've got Toaster Ringtail, which you can find at twitch.tv/toastedringtail. He's been doing VTuber streams of like Sherlock and The Last of Us and stuff. And then we've got Cloud Cuckoo Country, which I got the words in the correct order this time, unlike the Armello <laughs> disaster. <laughs> so we've reached a 100% gay furry uh, saturation on this podcast. You can find Cloud Cuckoo Country by uh, by going to Cloud Cuckoo Country on YouTube. And he does a lot of, uh, like, book video essays slash reviews slash, and more recently, like, preview, like, Book club videos, I guess. Yeah, the I, thing.
1: I people still don't fully understand what that is. <laughs> um, I thought I explained it okay, in that I do like one recommendation video, and then a couple of months later, I do a book club that features the comments, uh, from people who have who actually went away and read the book. I thought, may you know, I. Like it's, it's it's it's. I thought I explained it, but I think people just need to see it in order to get it. Because I never underestimate
0: yeah, YouTube's ability to misinterpret. There, it's. It, oh, yeah. I, I'm always impressed in new ways. Like I, I put out a post <laughs> saying like, "Hey, I'm doing these little like puppeteered shorts based on that Astera and Echo scenes. Like, what were your favorite moments so far? And I'll maybe maybe I'll make one." And immediately people are referencing like future events of Echo that have never happened in the series. I'm like, that's obviously not what I meant. What? <laughs> what? How can that be your favorite moment of the playthrough when we haven't gotten there? <laughs> people are impressive. They're, they're, they're beautiful and they're a disaster.
2: Incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean, the shorts have been doing pretty well, though, right? Uh, you were posting about it on Discord last year. They're doing week. all
0: right. Uh, it's a it's a variety. They're doing better than my other content, which is also not doing well. It's <laughs> the real thing that's <laughs> happening. <laughs> but anyway, Cuckoo, I don't know if you know the the nightmare that began uh, because you joined us for Let's Plays, which is that uh, we started playing our Melo to hang out with you that time, and we've continued to play our mellow but the horrifying disaster that has occurred is that uh, as you'll remember, I won the match with you by somebody trying to kill the king and then die. I think that I was just, me. And then I won the prestige victory on accident, not knowing that it even worked that way. Oh yeah! I have now won four consecutive games with prestige.
1: Yeah, that that that, that happens. <laughs> every, um, I'm still, I, I, I still. Don't I remember because I know
0: what I'm doing, and I'm exclusively winning because someone else fails to kill the king every match.
1: Yeah, there there was, that used to be like every game of Armello in the beta that I remember because there was like a version, because I was in the Armello beta and there was a version of the game that didn't have a lot of the character progression and didn't have ways for you to like, you know, make it more likely that you roll like all of the good treasure cards that let you like make your character overpowered. Uh, But the king was still an overpowered character to fight. And so most of the game was just you wander around hoping that you draw good cards and then, you know, go and fight the king. And then you just stood no chance or barely any chance. And every single game ended in prestige victory. And people kept like just the The forums are basically just nothing but people suggesting to the devs how can we make it so that every victory isn't a prestige victory. <laughs> but um, yeah, but and yeah, it it was a it, it was a strange strange time <laughs> for
0: the uh for context, Armello is a free uh not a board game adaptation, but a made for video games board game style like like
1: uh strategy game. I, uh, d- I don't think it's explicitly furry. Like, it's, about- it's, it's, <laughs> gonna it's say. furry in the same way that you can call, like, Redwall furry. Like, if you actually <laughs> asked Brian Jacques, uh, or Jacques, I can never remember how his name's supposed to be, be pronounced, uh, whether the S is si- silent or not. If you asked him, he would probably tell you... Well, he'd probably say back to you, first of all, what the hell is a furry? And then if you <laughs> asked him in earnest, he'd, pro- he'd probably say... Uh, yeah, I'm um, probably not that. I just wrote a bunch of kids' books featuring, like, furry animals that wear clothes, walk on two legs, talk, and swing swords. Um, and, but, you know, it has the kind of aesthetic that a lot of furries vibe with, and so we kind of just, you know... It's the
0: difference between uh,
1: yeah. Anthro that is in the fandom and Anthro that's
0: out of the fandom. Uh, out of the fandom. The way I was going to elaborate, though, was that it is just a neutral, like... People make animal people in video games and in fiction and so on, but all of the credited <laughs> artists that I recognize are furry artists, and one of them I've commissioned twice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's <what laughs> so it's kind of in the fandom. Like it's got uh, speaking of last names, we struggle with. It's got uh, or first names, I guess. It's got Jeremy or Jerome Jacinto, who is the artist of Tooth and Tail and Ghost of a Tail. Also does a lot of the cards, Narmelo. And I've commissioned them multiple times, and they're—I I would say decidedly furry.
3: <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: but yeah, no, it's—it's—it's it's, uh, it's hard to say exactly. But it's a—it's a cool game. I'm mixed on it on some level lately. I'm still learning it, but I'm winning every match, even though I'm learning it. And there's like a lot of mechanics that are fun, but I don't know if I—I gen- I don't know if I necessarily love just how free you are to spam your hand of nightmare cards at other players to essentially punish the idea of being the first one to try to go after the king ever. It's like, it quickly becomes this, like, you're punished for trying to do the thing in a way that isn't entirely, like, how do I put this? Like, I play play a lot of Twilight Imperium. I don't know if you're aware of that game, but it's a, uh, it's like space, like, it's like the video game civilization kind of but it's like a it's like a six to eight player competitive tabletop game that takes eight hours to play basically we have like a randomly generated tile based solar system and everyone's playing a different uh galactic civilization that has different uh, unit strengths and costs and like racial abilities and so on and you'll like try to play this big sort of like this asymmetrical free-for-all game. And it has a similar thing to Armello where because it's free-for-all, it's not inherently a skill-based fair game because the only way to have that really is to have a one-on-one game or a team versus team game in any game. The moment a game is free-for-all, you're, you're more open to the whims of like uh, emergent storytelling than you are to game balance. Like everyone's just collectively <laughs> making dramatic choices Partly out of spite and partly out of strategic choices, but it's so chaotic that so many people are acting of their own interests against each other that the result is chaos. And you get what you get out of it is a story more often than anything. But like that game does have a central planet that has a massive amount of it has a massive amount of influence to the point where it can sway every vote throughout the game and is just a very powerful place and also can literally just become a a source of victory points every turn. So there's, like, a very powerful central planet. But the moment you go there, you're comically, like, a target to everyone. And also the victory point tracker every every turn is visible. So you can see who's on the verge of potentially winning and all decide to just obliterate that person if you really want to as a collective (laughs) table.
1: But... The the, the good, old-fashioned free-for-all game strategy yeah. of everyone hit the leader.
0: <laughs> it's like, yeah, a, it's like the... the prisoner's dilemma
1: a little bit. Like, there's
0: like this element of like either everyone collectively decides to crush this thing that is the person that's seemingly winning, which in some ways often just king makes somebody else. Or everyone is like, Loudly announcing how bad this person's a problem and clearly needs to be dealt with while not making any personal risks to do so because they don't want to lose the resources.
2: And then, like, why isn't anyone dealing with this thing that I'm not dealing with? Well, it's like it's like (laughs) holding on to your blue shell in Mario Kart being like, well, maybe maybe if someone else gets gets the first person out, I can, like, use my blue shell to knock the second person out of place. But like, I That's just, just I like find, the tabletop balance. <laughs>
0: I, find, I find the Twilight Imperium approach slightly more compelling, just because when you try, when you see the person who is the problem, and you decide you're going to deal with them in some way, you have to like invest resources in a r- way that is a risk to yourself. Like you engage in yep. like Risk style, like the board game Risk style, like battles where that can go either way, no matter how stacked things are in one way or the other, because they're dice based. And like in Armello, you can just like lol i have a card that says you lose i played it from 10 tiles away just because i didn't want you to do that (laughs) and you're like oh like you could like people can play a card on you at almost no cost to themselves that just makes you spend three turns walking back to where you were and it's like a little it's a little too like mario party sometimes but i keep and that's (laughs) i think that's why i keep winning also (laughs) because it's not entirely based on who's making the smartest choices but there's a lot of compelling stuff it's a cool art style and a fun little it's a fun little loop it's fun to hang out and just play
2: yeah yeah I well, think it, it is one of those
1: games where i think if it didn't have the furry adjacent aesthetic i probably wouldn't play it at all but like <laughs> it it pushes it over the line for me for never play it to yeah I'll i'll break this
2: out sometimes it's fun <laughs> I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I've like stayed away from it honestly. Uh I'm notoriously not a huge fan of like digital board games in general. Um but I do like Armello's art style. I think it looks very nice. But then every single time I watch the streams or I you know, I've had a few opportunities to play it myself and I'm just like, man, this game is is just a chaos <laughs> sort of experience. Yeah. Uh, It's just it's not exactly for me, but I I find it very uh, Very good looking at the very least and I think You know the furry adjacent aspect of it is what made it catch my attention to begin with uh, Even if it didn't really stick with me. I think I've I've played a considerable amount of root, which is also pretty furry adjacent Um, And that game I think has a lot of similar issues, but I do like it um, You know every once in a while
1: Root yeah, is less, I've, like, I've only random, played one. I've yeah. only played one proper game of root, and it was one where I got out to an early lead, and then everyone just failed to uh, to coordinate to hit the leader, <laughs> and then everyone, and then and then I just I just sort of said to everyone in like the last few turns, like the reason I'm winning is because you all know I'm winning, but none of you are, like, punishing me for it. If you mm-hmm. all pooled together your resources and punished me, then I wouldn't win. And so in the last few turns, they actually all just focused exclusively on me, and then I didn't win. And uh, one of my friends actually <laughs> managed to overtake me, and I forget what the specific victory conditions are in that game because I only played it once ages ago. But, yeah, I came in close second uh, because of that. Um mm-hmm so yeah the f- free for free for all party games are not the best for strategy but you know <laughs> people want to play people want to play them people want to play free for all party games so Root, you, know, you know
0: roots a beautiful game in that it's a horrible idea <laughs> like they, they, they <laughs> yeah <laughs> like for the same reason that overwatch is a horrible idea where you're like what if almost every character had their own rule set essentially and was playing kind of a different game like how like however watches a game where Doomfist exists or or like Wrecking Ball exists, like you're a physics based rolling character that is playing a game against someone who just has a gun. <laughs> like mm, yeah. like people are just playing different things, and like Root is a four corners map that only has 3 kingdoms because the fourth player is Geralt <laughs> wandering around <Yeah>. doing quests <laughs> on the map <laughs> like and all the four kingdoms have different rules completely most notably like the fucking birds just have like this skexy like hierarchy where they have to fulfill incredibly specific promises every turn to their own rule set that it, that, that have nothing to do with other players and if they fail their self-declared rule Every turn, then they have a collapse of government and they have to reform their government and get new rules, and it resets like their abilities essentially. And like every team has some kind of weird fucked up thing going on like that. It's it's a I baffling sometimes, sometimes game. De- sometimes games are
1: just Sometimes games are just designed like that. Like I follow a lot of um, like esports, and sometimes mm-hmm. in order to make like a specific character or a faction interesting, they'll just invent a whole separate mechanic from like yep. the base core mechanics yeah. and like they'll give they'll give a character in a fighting game their own meter and their own yep. unique special resources that they have to keep track of or like my favorite in um like uh recent Age of Empires 4 they've tried to uh which I play a lot it's my favorite game um they introduce like factions with like their own um like special menu That they can like select options on that no other faction in the game has. (laughs) It's just like you know, at at some point you get you get away from. uh, I suppose what people would consider like the core mechanics of the game, Mm -hmm. um, and just into like special like unique. I'm playing you know single player with myself territory, which can get a bit dangerous sometimes. I think.
2: I'm so happy with interesting. It's interesting that you bring up, like, fighting games, too, because, uh, you know, that sort of uh, concept of, like, introducing individual mechanics for characters, more so than just, like, you know, here's a unique spin on how this character, like, plays the neutral or whatever, like, you have in something like Street Fighter. The thing that sort of defines a lot of the modern anime fighters, uh, like Guilty Gear, which is the game that I play primarily, and, like, even other stuff like Blaze Blue or, like, the Persona fighting game, or even DBFZ to some extent. Um, is this idea that like each character has their own uh, unique mechanics and unique approach to the game? So, just speaking from my experience, like Guilty Gear is really uniquely asynchronous in that regard because what a you know like a chip or a millia player has to do to be at advantage is very different than like what a happy chaos player has to do. You know, happy chaos is a gun and he has ammo he needs to manage <laughs> and the spots on the screen that he plays well on are very different than like a chip or a soul or a Kai who are like kind of more rushed down, close range, mid range players uh in the game. And in some sense, you know, every game has like a different or every genre, I should say, has a different degree of asynchronicity that you can like allow for. Right. Like Overwatch has characters that have different mechanics that play really differently from each other, but they still sort of are playing the same game in some sense of like, okay, we all have a goal. We need to move here. We need to eliminate the other team. We need to capture a point or whatever. The same thing is definitely true in fighting games uh, and especially in Guilty Gear. You know, at the end of the day, you're just trying to get your opponent's health down. Uh, But like the amount of flexibility that you get in these experiences um, that sort of target this asynchronicity can really have a drastic effect on how individual players even approach the game. So it's funny. Um, I've been playing a lot of Street Fighter Five this past week because I'm trying to get prepared. Yeah, Street, for Street Fighter, Fighter 6, Six is coming out
1: this late this exactly. year, exactly. Yeah.
2: And you- it's funny. I'm like a top 500 Guilty Gear player when I'm grinding, but I'm like hard <laughs> stuck silver <laughs> in Street Fighter Five because Street Fighter is such a fundamentals based game. Even with the individual mechanics on each character, you still have to be good at the same things across the cast in order to succeed. Uh, and, and get anywhere, whereas in Guilty Gear, like I'm really great at playing my character, but if I like switch to a different character, like I'm basically playing a completely different game, and I would be garbage at them. Street Fighter Five doesn't matter who I play; I'm like hard stuck silver because of my fundamentals. So it's just it's kind of interesting to see how that like asynchronicity actually affects different genres. Uh, you heard it and, here and first, types folks. Of
1: uh, Street Fighter players are just better than Guilty Gear players, apparently.
2: Damn. <laughs> I mean. I don't want to play actual, into the uh, truth. There's
1: probably some actually actual drama about that online somewhere. scores. You go deep oh, there, enough on Twitter.
2: There definitely is. You know, Street Fighter players absolutely believe they have like the best fundamentals ever and are better at footsies and neutral than any other games. I don't necessarily agree or disagree with that. I think it's just the... The amount of things that these games focus on and like what you have to be super good at in order to reach a modicum of success differs based on what it's focusing on. Right. Like I think a top level Guilty Gear player who's like actually good at the game could probably transfer over to Street Fighter because fundamentals are fundamentals in all fighting games. And no matter what, you have to get good at certain things in order to do well. Um, but like, yeah, Street Fighter players are better at not jumping than Guilty Gear players, right? Uh, and that's just a a side effect of uh, you know the system mechanics and, and kind of what they focus on. So it is what it is. Uh, I'm definitely bad at Street Fighter, comparative to a lot of anime fighting games. Like, I I struggle mm-hmm. very deeply playing, you know, very patient neutral. So it is what it is. But uh, yeah, don't getting, cancel I'm the I'm other Guilty Gear players. Getting <laughs> i'm excited about that i i think street fighter 6 looks fantastic uh i'm very very excited to play that game i just i like fighting games
0: where you strafe mm-hmm. i like a 3d level I'm,
1: mm-hmm. I'm immediately so much less interested in any fighting game that exists in 2d I, I have started learning the fighting game genre with guilty gear strive in my discord server with some friends Mm -hmm. um and part of the part of the reason is that like i'm i try to get my friends to learn rts because i'm an rts guy but um a lot of my friends are just like what is this can i swear on your podcast oh yeah okay a lot of my friends are like what is this later so (laughs) okay what what is this fucking genre i just don't get it um you know, you move units and wait for, wait for everything to happen. Um, and I'm like, no, it's really good. And so to try and meet some, to try and like meet them on mutual ground, I've also committed to learning genres that they like. Um, and one of them is fighting games. And, uh, so I've been trying to practice quarter circles and shoryuken motions and shit. And, uh, I'm oscillating between this is really really fun and this is really really frustrating, depending on how reliably my moves come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> so, I honestly like to play I, fighting games that have simple inputs, basically. They just like I don't uh, that have more emphasis on like you can strafe, you can knock people against walls and off ledges and things, but like well, they're they just I mean, aren't I mean, like, the, hard they're... combos in Dead or Alive.
1: I mean, there, there's the the only thing that I know about the discourse is that like a lot of people uh, bring up every now and again, all oh, fighting games shouldn't have hard inputs, quarter circles, and sure you can motions are too hard, and then that starts a discourse of like, oh, you people just need to get good and so on. Yeah, uh, but. Now there's a, actually has been some evolution to the discourse because apparently there's this thing called a hitbox controller, which just gets mm-hmm. rid of the stick entirely and yep. makes it makes it more like an RTS layout. Ironically, where you like have hotkeys for for <laughs> macro imports or some shit. Um, I I don't know too much about it myself, but it does look a little bit more like their um like like people like. Mashing, uh, mashing hotkeys on a keyboard. Um, so I have been thinking about just like, um, button layouting my keyboard and seeing if that makes it easier and makes it more consistent, and I don't have to like wrestle with the analog stick on my controller. toaster, you have a hitbox, right?
2: I do. I have a hitbox sitting right next to me. Um, they are not. It's not so much hotkeys as it is using like arrow keys. So the thing with fighting games in most cases is that they only read cardinal inputs um, outside of really specific instances when it's trying to figure out how to parse input um, between like a quarter circle forward and a DP Um, for people who are listening and they hear that and understand that. Good for you. I'm not going to explain what that means for people (laughs) who don't. But uh, basically a hitbox controller just makes it so your inputs are really clean um, and it is just faster than using a stick because you can just tap with your fingers rather than you know doing uh, full motions with your wrist or your arm like you would with a levered controller. Um, but yeah, uh, it's just it's been a preference lately. Um, is it's like a thing that I guess first came out, I want to say back in like 2013 was when you started seeing them hit the market and, and start getting popularized. Um, but nowadays leverless controllers are, are very, very popular, um, and are taking a big sort of, uh, amount of mind share in Mm -hmm. the fighting game community discourse just because people are like, oh, it's cheating because you can, you can do inputs really quickly and the game's not designed around it, um, versus like old school, uh, kind of purists who prefer levered controllers and then even further from that like zoomer fighting game players who are playing on like game pads and stuff so Mm uh hitboxes are interesting i like them that's how i prefer to play um though actually my favorite controller is called a cross up which is like a it's like a levered stick that has hitbox extra buttons on it so it's like you have an analog stick and a d-pad that you can have access to so it makes it more like a game pad um, and those are very controversial, but I do really, really like my cross-up. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, fighting game input discourse is, like, a whole topic <laughs> that is insane and, and complicated, but...
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I've i always found, like, controller discourse very, very odd just because, like, what I'm used to in RTS is just fully customizable hotkeys. Like, you can literally just wire up... Like, like it's usually just expected that an RTS game will have, like customization options to just allow you to play it however you want because the challenge there's people think of it as like a mechanical execution kind of genre because they've seen starcraft pros with like 400 apm Mm -hmm. but um but it's actually more of a like attention splitting genre so like how you mash the buttons is like not as important as like are you just doing multiple things at the same time so you could like wire up the most cheaty like i'm letting the gameplay itself set up you want but if you can't split your attention and make multiple decisions on multiple fronts at the same time you're not really playing the genre and there's no controller that's going to fix that for you
2: (laughs) yeah no exactly like at it it, (laughs) this is going to make people really mad but at a certain point you just need to learn how to actually play the game like, not to say people need to get good, but like, if you can't do a, a dragon punch, like, you, at some point, you just got to learn how to do a dragon punch. There's yeah, nothing you I, can do to make my yourself. Sure, my Shuri Yukon
1: motions are so inconsistent. Like, <laughs> I, I got the quarter circle down, and I can do quarter circles consistently, you know, provided I don't put the game down for two weeks and then come back and I'm like, oh, God, my quarter circles are inconsistent again um but like but like the shoryuken motion is hard like oh for sure it feels it feels hard to me to do with an analog stick i'll say that Mm -hmm. um and uh and i hate it and uh, that's why i almost never use like the the dragon punch moves and i'm Mm -hmm. always like what other moves can i do instead of dragon punch and sometimes Mm -hmm. it does feel a little bit especially like If I go into combo recipes and it's like, end this combo with a dragon punch, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm ending it with something else then.
2: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. I mean, I think it's one of those things, too, that that comes from a archaic, not archaic in the like obsolete sense, but a truly old fashioned design um, of when arcades were in cabinets and every single time you wanted to play a fighting game, you had to use a stick. Uh, and like doing a DP on a stick is not as hard as it is to do on a controller or even, um, you know, on an analog stick, uh, regardless of if you're using a D pad or an analog stick on a controller, uh, because the, this is getting way in the weeds, but, uh, arcade sticks usually have something called a square gate in them. This means that even though the stick can move 360 degrees around, Uh, the actual housing that the stick is in is a square. So if you want to do a DP, you press forward and then you just move the stick down and slam it into down forward. And that's like a hard corner that you can lock into and find really easily. So it's like much, much easier to do a DP on a stick than it is to do it on, uh, you know, like a PS4 controller or a PS5 controller. Um, so it's, it's just a, one of those a, I things. I am actually
1: using a PS4 controller.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and like that and there, gets yeah. more complicated when when sticks, you know, analog sticks themselves are like housed in like circular housings because like you can't find that corner super easily. So I do understand yeah. that concept. And it's funny that you bring up controller discourse as this thing because we now live in an era where like third-party controllers are not those shitty mad cats like you know <laughs> pelican controllers that we used to have back in the day where it's like okay you get uh you get like this translucent purple controller that you like you know curse your friends you with are, you, when they come you over are, you to are like
1: exactly describing a controller that somebody gave me when i was like 12
2: or yeah something. exactly so literally and it's like Mad it's cats, analog sticks are too small translucent <laughs> purple
1: got a fu- bunch of fucking lights shining through the case um yeah no that that, that was that's funny
2: but hey. it, it's it, it's interesting to see that because we like live in this world now where like scuff controllers and elite controllers and i think there's like now like the dual sense edge which is sony's official ps5 like pro controller These things exist and people are using them to, you know, theoretically get a quote unquote competitive advantage. And there are people on both sides of this saying it like gate keeps poor people from like doing rising to the absolute best level of ability in, in these competitive games. Um, And that's totally valid, but there's also people saying like, well, if we do have the technology to use this, why don't we use this technology? Like if this is something that the games enable, Why shouldn't we strive to utilize them? Because that's something that we've done in modern sports and stuff like that. Like training regimens are getting better. Tools to get people into shape are getting better. You know, not I don't think a pro controller is analogous to like using anabolic steroids to build muscle mass. You know what I mean? Like there's a very different degree there.
1: I mean, the discussion is always like, um, what do we want to see out of the sport? Because like the classic (laughs) example is like, um, you know, they changed the rules to basketball uh, and how basketball was played many, many times. There was a whole debate over whether dribbling should be a thing. Um, Yes. And uh, they also like basically, basically every single like game designer nerd I know is fascinated by the history of basketball because the rules were changed so many times, specifically because they were trying to work out what game do we want to watch played? They were like, we can make the game as balanced as possible and we can make the game as fair as possible, but at the end of the day, what we want is a game that's exciting to watch and that maybe even if it isn't like the most, like uh, the highest integrity sport, at least appears to be a high integrity sport. So, like you know, we we want people to watch basketball and be able to feel in their in their you know in their minds and in their hearts that this is a you know a sport that is a genuine contest of skill between athletes. Yep. But we also don't want them to be like you know appreciating the sport like nerds, like they're like, mm-hmm. oh yes, I see that he is like you know, uh, the the correct strategic decision was to play hot potato at the other end of the court to waste time on the clock. No, we want players to be shooting for the goal. That's what we want, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. I mean, and it becomes the question of like what is the quote unquote real game? Like what's the true yeah. game here? And uh it, it's kind of funny, I mean, this is something that you and I share, at least, uh, Cuckoo, but you know, you have your background in uh doing lit crit and and lit crit studies. Uh, I did a lot of game studies and there's a lot of overlap uh, between that academically and so it, it, it gets to this question of like what actually defines like the text of a game or what defines the rules that we're actually operating on when we're all reading and trying to discuss this thing and I think controller discourse is just sort of video games version right now in terms of like critical academia controller discourse exists in that space of like how do we actually define the thing that we're discussing and how do we interface with it that gives us common ground and that same thing as you just said like happened in sports right like what is the true game is basketball a game where we dribble or is it a game where we shoot and like that's just a thing that happens in every single you know game media type that exists so
1: yeah, well, well it's basically just what do we want out of this thing? Cuz that's that's always like the discussions around like like everything including art and literature and everything is that just like you know, people get hung up on like how do we how, how is how do we get to the purest like sense of what literature is or what art is? Like how do we define art? And anyone who's thought about these problems for long enough are just like this is a subjective human problem. There's no particles that we can measure that will tell us what the correct answer is. This isn't science. So we just at some point have to decide, what do we want out of this? What do we want out of books? What do we want out of movies and paintings and sculptures and other shit like that? So, like, totally. you know, <laughs> let, let's make the rules based on what we want rather than trying to find, like, what is art in the purest, pure sense or whatever, because we're never going to find it. Oh, um, completely. Yeah. The
0: surprisingly difficult part about just the entire conversation about either game balance or media analysis is: what is? <laughs> are we even having the same conversation about the thing? Do we have the same yeah. base assumptions about what this conversation is even about and its goals? <laughs> and it's yeah, like surprisingly have, have we a defined... universal <laughs> problem in both of these fields. Yeah, like
2: I, like it's I like was, well, I, trying to figure out like, like obviously how to made, define like, the, whole... the discourse.
1: I I, I laughed so much at, like, I recently published, well, last month, about two weeks ago, I published a video called You Should Read This Is How You Lose the Time War. Now, I knew (laughs) that people had split opinions about This Is How You Lose the Time War, but I uh, liked it. And also because this, um, I'm proposing it as, like, part of a show based on audience feedback. I was like, I like the idea that people have split opinions about it because that will mean that I have more to work with, right? um but like i just laughed where within the space of like 2 minutes i got one comment which was um oh my god i hate that people like this book i hate the praise it's getting it's so bad it's the worst written book i've ever heard or or read um, and then, in the space of two minutes, just another person, oh my God, I'm so glad you're talking about this book. It's one of the best written books I've ever <laughs> I've ever read. And I'm just like, yeah, it's it, <laughs> that's that, that that yeah, that's that's just most art, really. like you know, mm-hmm. it's either genius or terrible depending on who you are
2: well it's it's interesting that we bring this up in this context too, because we are at least right now talking primarily about online discourse where the barrier to entry is very low right oh yeah everyone
1: everyone has an opinion these days everyone's a critic
2: (laughs) yeah everyone's a critic everyone has an opinion these days and there's like no credentials right there's no authority Um, and I'm not saying that like in order to speak critically about something you like need to go to college or something but like a lot of these discussions especially with more established forms of media and entertainment Um, come through and they they used to be debated in academia right where like people at least had a some sense of foundation of like how to discourse and it was happening in these closed settings where people were coming together under if not the same assumptions the same relative degree of training right on how to talk about stuff whereas like online now like you know, uh, soccer lover for 2069 on Twitter can go online and post their, you know, seemingly academically worded, uh, diatribe about how basketball isn't a real game, uh, with absolutely (laughs) no critical training or really any actual thesis. And it looks the same as like something that someone with some sort of like authoritative sports studies background might also say, so it, long story short, like the internet enables a lot of chaff and noise in these discussions I'm, that makes it harder I, to talk about
1: I mean personally, I would rather that anyone can uh, i i I, pref- I prefer the environment where anyone can have their opinion heard rather than just it's the domain of a select few specially trained academics because like especially like you know i'm a so uh because c- c- like especially in the context of, like, queer history and so on, having all of the, like, criticism about, like, art happen behind closed doors in ivory towers in academia where everyone's a cis, straight, white guy. Um, yeah, Well, almost exactly. everyone... Yeah, me- means that for a lot of art history, you just get people talking about the same, you know, canon, mm-hmm. the literary canon of just like, you know, straight white authors. And the same thing happens in like the canon of philosophy and so on. And yeah. I think that it's healthier for everyone, including the cis straight white dudes, mm-hmm. if you open that up to more perspectives and you start introducing more things than just what the accepted canon is um so i i would i do prefer that we have the situation that we have now online where anyone can potentially have an audience although i'm not going to say that that's a perfect solution because yeah if i did (laughs) that would that would make me a libertarian just just let the free market decide you know
2: (laughs) for (laughs) sure i mean yeah I think, I think I'm think i of two minds on it, where it's like, on one hand, it is good to have far more diverse opinions um, about media and critique, and it's, it's important that we widen the canon of not only literature, but video games and movies and TV and all these things that we're talking about. But I do sometimes miss the more structured uh, arenas of discourse, so to speak, that things like academia provide. Um, so, uh, you know, I think all of this comes with the caveat of like, If you are reading, people argue about (laughs) fighting games on Twitter, and they're like, "Hitboxes are cheating. Real players only use sticks." It's like, get out of here! Like, not everyone's voice is is necessarily valid in this discourse. If people are that heated about something so minor, uh, in terms of like controllers and stuff, you know, Uh, it's okay to to dismiss. You know, a lot of this like heated gut reaction discourse, as long as you you understand uh, the actual conversation at play, I think is what I'm trying to say there. So for me, like a side
0: struggle with a lot of stuff online, like on Twitter and YouTube is just the fact that like people are so quick to sound off with negative takes, especially about things that (laughs) they have never engaged with
1: and so like oh, a huge that, funny, amount though. of people talking I, I, I about love things just tw- are people I love who just have... tweeting out I love just tweeting <laughs> out Jojo's Bizarre Adventure is mid and then just seeing people get oh, mad man. about that I am like, that guy
0: <laughs> like there's just such a there's just, it can be so frustrating just to watch like especially when you make like a big, big video essay about something and all the tweets, like all the responses you just want them to be able to you, like, you want to be able to just ta- have them be tagged of like this person watched 80% of the video this person watched two seconds of the video paused it left a reply and left and like that's like like a, a whole element of that and like how there there will be uh entire tweet threads about and like conversations of people all like going on about how horrible a thing is be like a piece of media or a youtube video or something where none of them have watched it and it's just like, this is a vacuum of meaning. Like, this is just such an yeah. exhausting thing that people do, is having like a whole group of people all talk about something, and they all have takes about it, but none of them have actually engaged with it on any level. So they're just writing headcanon fan fiction about somebody else's I- opinions about something, and it's just like, this is a non-conversation, and people often prefer to do this over at, like any other... like, like It's like, why... Why go out of your way to signal boost a thing just to complain about it without engaging with it? So you also have nothing to say about it. It's just a bizarre behavior pattern.
2: Well, i think it's interesting that you bring that up too because uh getting back to just using fighting games as an example here or i mean even overwatch or uh, you know rts's i'm sure this happens in age of empires online and starcraft and stuff where people <laughs> oh, will i could be tell like,
1: you i could tell you about age of empires discourse but <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't know how i don't know how sustainable that is for, an, for a podcast
2: <laughs> i just i feel like every single game especially competitive games online you'll see people be like oh you know mercies oh, like it'll be a day into a season and they'll be like mercy's trash brig is op please nerf please buff and it's like how much of this is valid and like how much of this is you just being upset that you lost your ranking match and like haven't (laughs) learned the matchup yet you know like how much actual knowledge are we working with here or are people just speaking you know from the gut oh there's Uh, a
0: whole thing to get into about (laughs) like meta and how to some extent like tiny changes being made to characters on a scale that would only affect the top top percentages of players where like the vast majority of players how good you are at a character is more important than their week to week like stat changes Uh, but everyone watches the same five content creators that shape the entire discourse around a game's community and so you will watch Every single time that the supposed meta changes, you can actively watch everybody change characters in the low ranks where they act where it's actively a bad idea to just like play a character. You don't know how to play instead of the one you know how to play because you're bad at the game. Like, like, but they they took they took one damage off of my shot pellets off of my SMGs. (laughs) And so now this game's unplayable in silver. And I'm like, that's that's not how this works. It's not how this works at all.
2: Well yeah, I mean it's funny it's, that we talk about this with, with Overwatch specifically, right? Like I haven't played since season two, since the last time I was in a video um with you and the crew. Because you're a but
0: VTuber like, now.
2: Because I'm busy and I Your have competition. a Twitch channel. <laughs> like like and subscribe twitch.tv toastedringtail toasted ringtail. I'm live every day at five.
1: Um <laughs> before 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 you were asked to be on this podcast, you were like, mm, yes, I can make some time for you peasants. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm
2: a big time, big time Twitch VTuber with 15 concurrent viewers. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the uh the thing with overwatch too is that you'll just see you'll see people be like oh so, you know if you want to win this game just play sojourn you know like just switch switch to sojourn you're playing brig there's no way you can play and we're in like a bronze three ranking match like it's like yeah we're Sojourn literally
0: too hard to play
2: exactly like you're not the the infinitesimally small like frame data and like Damage differences that are made between characters are not going to uh, fundamentally change your interactions on a matchup by matchup and, and character by character level, right? Like, this thing happens with fighting games all the time. Like, uh, you know, uh, just using Guilty Gear as an example, like uh, Nagoriyuki, who was like the top, top tier next to Happy Chaos um, for all of season two, got nerfed. And people were immediately, the next day, being like, this character's unplayable, like you can't, you can't play as him anymore, like Nagoriuki is free, and it's like, I'm playing in, you know, on the Celestial Floor, which is the highest rank um, on the online ladder, and I'm not amazing, like, I'm I am a pretty okay Guilty Gear player. And, like, Nagori Yuki is most certainly not free now, even outside of the pro ranks. You can't just pick against Nagoriyuki and win. Like, that's not how balance fundamentally works, especially when you're playing a full game. But I feel like a lot of people at the lower levels who aren't actually grinding and they're just watching, you know, content creator punditry will be like, Oh, yeah, like, this is how the game is played now. And it's just, this is a huge change. And it's like the changes that are really big to pro players will not matter to you because you don't actually understand how the whole game is played and how all of these things interact at a holistic level, right? So, buffing Zenyatta's kick in Overwatch does not fundamentally change his matchup with like a Mercy in Bronze Five. Like, it's not. Yeah, it, it creates it doesn't situations make a where it's like,
0: sir, we're still in the tier where we're trying to teach you not to trickle. <laughs> exactly like then, like your this, shot
2: accuracy is 20
0: percent like this does not make a difference there are significantly more important places where you have more impact than the balance of the character as opposed to like Definitely. yeah there's like there's a level where people are so good that they're hitting like the skill ceilings of the game and at that point the literal bounds of what's possible become restrictions essentially and a character mm-hmm. just stops having the ability to hit certain breakpoints within a certain amount of time and will just get
1: punished too fast 4.0.00% of the players. <laughs> my fa- my favorite example from um, Age of Empires 4 recently was actually uh, they released some expansion sieves and legit, I think the Malians went from like top tier, please nerf, to bottom tier, please buff, to top tier, please nerf, to average <laughs> within the span of one patch because... <laughs> People first were just like looked at their what they were capable of in matches where nobody was rushing them and they just got to sit back and make an economy. And it was worked out that if you don't rush them, they have the best economy in the game. And people were like, oh, this civ is very clearly OP, please nerf. And then people figured out, oh, I can just rush them. And then they became bottom tier and then mm-hmm. people figured out how to play them properly and they became top tier and then people <laughs> figured out how to play against them properly and they became average but yeah. like nobody acknowledged acknowledged that, that was happened that's what was happening people were just like the malians are op please nerf and then the malians are underpowered please buff and uh just you know mindlessly regurgitating what the discourse was without like being like you know maybe we should shut the fuck up and let the meta settle before we start making discourse about this,
2: you know? (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. I I think about this too. Uh, the example I always go back to is like super smash brothers melee. Uh, And Super Smash Bros. Melee is a really, really fascinating fighting game when it comes to looking at how meta has evolved and how people's understanding of the game has changed over years. Hasn't had a Uh,
1: patch in like 20 years. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, even if if you
2: want to consider like the European, the PAL release of the game, a patch, uh, the overall tier list of uh, Melee stayed very consistent for like 15 or 16 years. Um, however long it's been since release I think it came out in 2002. So it's 21 years old. It can drink Jesus. Um, <laughs> but the game stayed relatively stable for a very long time. And then in recent years with the rise of net play and with the rise of people like really innovating, you know, for years and years and years, Yoshi was considered like Z tier terrible, Um, Amsa started doing well, Um, Amsa won a super major, now Yoshi's considered like 7th or 8th on the tier list, like he might even be, I think right now people are saying like he edges out Samus, who is considered like the last viable character um, on the tier list, and it created this discussion of like what is a tier list, and are tiers real, and do they even matter, and my hot take here is that like tiers are real, in the, like, conceptual sense, there are always going to be characters in whatever game, it doesn't matter if it's a fighting game or a shooter, that are better than other characters that are just happen to be more well-suited to what the game is asking the player to do in order to win, right? Um, and that is always going to be true of every video game, every real-life game, every tabletop game. There are always going to be options that are centralizing and strong based on the design uh, that is in play but the cool thing about meta and meta evolving is that you slowly begin to chip away at what the game actually is and different evolving and revolving metas are different ways that players and people who are interfacing with these games uh, circle the drain on what the game is truly is asking and what truly excels. Now, I don't think that it's really theoretically even possible for like you to truly solve 100% of a game and win every single interaction you've ever had 100% of the time. It's just not humanly possible. But it's really interesting I mean, ex- to ex- see,
1: except for stuff like Connect Four and Checkers.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. Like the it needs it scales with the complexity of the game, right? And the mind games at play. If there's a human element there, um, and the game enables it, it, things will always be evolving. But it's intriguing to see how those meta situations affect how people perceive the game. And very, very often, it's hard to have a meaningful, truly insightful conversation about something especially in terms of like deep discourse, if you're doing it, you know, even within like a year or two of its release, right? So back when I was like reviewing games for uh, a site that will, just doesn't need to be fully mentioned, um, (laughs) there was a, uh, there were, were often conversations that very deeply immediately impacted topical current events, right? Like it's like, okay, like this game is bad because X, Y, and Z um, happened related to the development and we're all very angry about that a week after the game comes out. And I always wanted to say like, this is very important to discuss, but in terms of the game's long-term legacy, we should maybe consider what the discourse of this game will be like in 20 years, right? Like how are we going to be talking about Uh, Call of Duty, you know, 27, uh, 20 years after it comes out, is it going to resemble the conversation that we're having right now? Or is it going to be like games like Die Katana, where like at release their conversations and their discourse was completely vitriolic because people thought it was going to be incredible Um, and it wasn't, it was a very, very poorly put together game. And now 20 years later, we look at it as like a historical artifact of like a certain period of design and, uh, a sort of interesting historical piece of conversation to kind of deep dive. Like the value of a discourse, I think scales with the time away from it (laughs) that we are, the the amount of time removed we are from a certain thing. And. That absolutely, I think, applies to competitive games, especially after the games are quote unquote finished uh, and are past their life cycle in terms of like live service and stuff like that.
1: I mean, it, it can even, like I, I would say that even applies more so to books, considering that like books yep. are one of the oldest, like, well, not one of the oldest, excuse me, they are actually much more recent than most forms of art, but <laughs> they have a bigger backlog of, like, older works produced by people who have been dead for centuries. Yep. Um, yeah, and I, I always have to correct myself when I say, like, oldest, because I'm like, no, as like, novels are actually a, a re- relatively recent, historically speaking. It's just that, yeah. you know, they're older than movies, and we've all been, movies have been around for as long as we've been alive but mean, in terms of pop
2: art right like you can say in terms of pop art or entertainment art uh in the modern sense they're relatively old but in the grand canon of artistic endeavors relatively new
1: yeah but it's it's always a it's always a little bit um like you know there's there's always like discussions of like is this author you know problematic and you know there's you know do you do support their work and then there's well, this author's been dead for 200 years, so I can buy a <laughs> copy of their book guilt-free.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely.
0: The evolution of discourse about books intriguing. is also just fascinating, where, like, a huge percentage of the literary canon that we treat as being, like, the all-time greats, because basically they were uh, a combination of pop culture and high school has told us that they're most imp- the most important books were, like, yeah. complete flops when they came out. They were, like, actively yeah. disliked and received scathing reviews or were just straight-up ignored. And then, like, we we, we overlook how, how much, like, bizarre logistical things are the real reason why some things are prevalent the way that they are. Like, so, akin to, so, like, how so, so my... a movie or a show will completely fail and then Do become my, some my, sort of, like, yeah. weird, like, syndicated rerun thing... 10 years later and now it's a classic because this one channel wouldn't stop playing reruns of like a christmas story <laughs> or something <laughs> like yeah some like books have a bizarre individual narrative each time of how they even became the legacy they are and it's not necessarily tied to what's in them
1: yeah mm-hmm. so my my um favorite example of that uh, for books is that where the logistics kind of influence the work in, in ways that people didn't, uh, don't really think about today, unless you like, look it up is a lot of the works of Charles Dickens are apparently very long. Now I haven't read all of them, so I haven't verified this. So, but stuff like great expectations, um, and which I also haven't read, um, Long, but Christmas Carol, his most famous story, very very short, and people are like, did he like intend for it to be this short for like an artistic reason as opposed to his other works? It turns out that no, the reason the Christmas ca- A Christmas Carol is short is because. He footed the bill on publishing that one. So, if the book was really, really, really long, it would have been way, way, way <laughs> more expensive for him to publish. And so he he just dis- he t- f- for finance for his own financial reasons decided to keep the book really, really, really short to save on printing costs.
2: Uh, so. It's funny that you bring this up because the the idiom in at least in the film industry is like there's no better editor than budget. because it just (laughs) drastically like affects how you you come to these things and like it's very easy to forget that right like it's funny people will you know come up with all of these artistic or like interpretive reasons why things are the way they are but very often you know kind of ironically during history it's just like yeah, I had five bucks to my name and like couldn't film this shot or like really I, I used royalty free, you know, audio here because I couldn't afford the licensing. And that like drastically impacts how we view media. So it's kind of interesting. Almost
0: yeah. any piece of writing seems to benefit from a kill your darlings moment of just I need to get rid of <laughs> like two chapters of this at least. And then suddenly it's like, I need to, I need to
2: hit a deadline. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But it's like, because pacing is such a thing. Like oftentimes like there's just like almost any movie needs just some overindulgent element removed. Like every essay I've written had like two chapters. I just gave up on at the last second and just deleted, even though it Mm -hmm. it was written to have them in there. But I'm like these, I'm just keeping these here out of stubbornness or because it's self indulgent. And I like this part, but it's not even the point of the thing
1: I'm writing.
3: Yeah.
0: Shorter's often um, better. The, or, or,
1: or the th- or the thing that haunts me mm-hmm. especially considering that like a lot of literar a lot of literature is concerned with like the authorial voice is how many works actually have editors who no one knows because the only yeah. name that gets put on the cover is the author and you have to kind of almost go out of your way to find out how many editors a book had and who they were. And but in the meantime, people are just discussing, you know, like, you know, what was John Green's authorial intent? And, you know, Mm -hmm. did John Green intend this or that or whatever, even though John Green is one of the authors who is the most open about the fact that all of his books are hugely collaborative processes and always make sure to name like this person inspired this thing, this person inspired that thing. And even though I'm not the biggest fan of John Green, and I know you probably have a higher opinion of him than me, Keith. (laughs) <laughs> um, I do, he was, he was the guy who kind of started me on this, 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 this thought when he, when I watched a video of his, where he was like, yeah, when I, when I wrote Looking for Alaska, a lot of the stuff that people say is fantastic about the novel, I didn't actually come up with most of the things <laughs> that people love about Looking for Alaska, were came up with were, uh, somebody else came up with. And I just used in the book including the title he did not come up with the title looking for alaska that was um i forget who that was but it was someone else um and and you know he's one of the authors who is the most open about the fact that you know even though we treat novels more so than most other mediums as like a purely authorial form of art it's not. It's just. It's it. It's entirely. It's entirely. You know, team effort, collaborative process, inspirations yep. everywhere. Um, you know, and it it even it, it it kills me when people talk about this in terms of like films because people mm-hmm. do try and authorize directors um to the same extent that they authorize authors, but um but films are even more of a team effort. They're even less authorial yep. than books, and books are already like less authorial than people think
2: yeah definitely yeah. i've heard many I mean, a podcast about this... by
1: john green
0: where he details the <laughs> exhausting process of literally rewriting each book multiple times because of the uh, editorial process
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i uh, i think about this in relation to twin peaks a lot which has also come up a lot in the past few weeks uh, yesterday by the way was twin peaks day or the day before yesterday i should say at the time of recording mm. um february 24th r.i.p laura palmer uh, anyway, uh, so Twin Peaks is really murder. interesting. Yeah, it's the day the the first episode starts. But um, the the interesting thing with Twin Peaks is that people often attribute it to David Lynch. They're like, "Oh, this is David Lynch's baby. He made Twin Peaks. It's all him, like straight out of his mind. That's why it's so quirky." But the writers' room for Twin Peaks uh, was primarily headed by Mark Frost, the co-creator of Twin Peaks. And David Lynch only has writing and directing credits on like three or four episodes of the first two seasons. So he Mm. was actually a minority writer on Twin Peaks (laughs) and people often attribute a lot of the choices in the show to him. And that's fair. He was the showrunner and the executive producer. So he decided basically what made it in. But a very large majority of Twin Peaks's creative decisions uh, come from this people, this like group of people, like uh, Harley Payton and Mark Frost, Harley Payton, Haley Payton, I can't remember if I have the name right, um, and others who worked on this show um, that just have absolutely nothing to do with like Lynch's grander canon, right? Like. So it's funny when you talk about people authorizing directors or even critically using authorial intent as a like critical lens, especially in these collaborative efforts, because people will be like, okay, David Lynch in blue velvet frames this shot this way, and in the context of this, it means this thing. So if you look at Twin Peaks episode, you know, season one, episode five, they do the same thing and it must mean the same thing. And it's like, well, actually that shot, that like shot was directed by a second unit director. And this episode was written by a completely different person. And David Lynch was off working on Lost Highway at the time. So like, there is really no way for you to athrilly read this scene from a credibility perspective from whatever this author's intent was based on their other works, right? Uh, yeah. And that's just like sort of interesting to think about because a lot of this discourse, we, we t- you just talked about like authorial intent. I think it's interesting because like authorial intent very much can matter, but it also doesn't matter because people will <laughs> like never actually get the right authorial intent of something. And even if they do acknowledge that, it doesn't matter to how they're going to interpret it anyway. Like well, the, that's there are just so many not factors, how we interface. There are
1: so many factors at play that make it impossible to like reverse engineer what authorial intent is. And my favorite example yes. of this comes from, um, I interviewed, uh, Peter S. Beagle, the author of the last unicorn on my channel, Oh, great. That's awesome. Um, and I'm sure, he, I'm sure he's told this story many times, not just to me, because, you know, he's been around for ages and he's done a lot of interviews. But he talked about this, um, the, where he attended a, like, talk at a university, a lecture, where somebody was talking about one of the books he had written, which was not The Last Unicorn. And one of the characters in this book had a name that was, like, the name of this old Greek goddess, and the lecturer spent ages like explaining to the to the um to the to the lecture theater and all the people attending that clearly Peter S Beagle's intent with this name was to call back to this myth and create this meaning <laughs> and create this narrative and so on and that he said to the person afterwards um listen that was a great talk but I think you should know that the reason I chose that name is because I was trying to think of a name for a female character. And the first thing that I remembered was this like Greek girl from my high school. I had a crush on. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
2: and I, I think that there's definitely like, you know, there are definitely works out there that, that, I mean, a creator can be super authoritative on. A living person can say, this is what my story was about. Here are all the decisions that I made, and this is exactly why this means X, Y, and Z. And like that existing doesn't necessarily mean that other interpretations aren't also valid. Like People often take a very black and white stance when it comes to death of the author, right? They're like, oh, literally what the author says doesn't matter. This meaning isn't important. And it's like, well, it can be important, but it doesn't mean that other readings can't also be important. Um, and so it's it's always interesting to to, you know, read film lit, whatever criticism from this perspective of a like half understood postmodernist <laughs> stance um, <laughs> where people who don't really, you know, aren't actually critically engaging w- with something. They're just sort of yeah. parroting these tropes and these ideas and these frameworks um, when it's like actually kind of the beauty of media is like finding that middle ground and figuring out where where this intent might. Lead to, but also drop off, and like how, what you bring to the table when you're actually discussing and trying to understand something. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why modernist discourse um, and like formalist discourse still happens. <laughs> like people forget that that these like lit crit movements don't go away and aren't actually necessarily like obsolete in the traditional sense. Uh, Just because we have moved on to postmodernist discourse doesn't mean that people aren't criticizing things from a modernist lens anymore or that 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 discourse isn't meaningful in some sense. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. My
1: my big frustration with the death of the author essay is that nobody fucking reads it, even though it's four pages long and available (laughs) on Google. Well, people people
0: aren't even interested in the actual purpose of that argument. More often than not, no, nowadays, and, when someone invokes it, they're actually just moralizing, engaging with the piece of media because of the author's behavior, which is not even what
2: yeah, the premise is. Not what it's about at all. Yeah, exactly. No, but <laughs> But also,
1: like, you can tell, like, who hasn't read it because, like... Mm-hmm um they'll 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 say some shit like you know Roland Bart proposed this idea. he actually didn't <laughs> he was describing something that was happening at the time he was writing yes um <laughs> but from from my understanding people were people in literary academia were moving towards a less author intent centric way of <laughs> criticizing works, and Bart was just the guy who like. Captured formally, the like, discourse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he he he. Like this is what is happening. I'll refer to it as death of the author, and people liked that so much that they were like, "Yes, let's do that." But a lot of his um, a lot of a lot of his essay, especially the 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 first bit, was um, just sort of talking about how. When you think about it it is actually a bit odd that we place so much value on authorship because this is a <laughs> relatively recent phenomenon in human history where we authorize the creators of works and say that they are the authorities on these works which is where we get the derivative word author um yep. but but like he he was like you know something that interesting that's happening actually is that this person is talking about this book in this way, and this person is talking about this in this way, and so on. And I think that there's a movement, uh, that there is an emerging movement that's moving away from authorial intent and towards, you know, reader response. And uh, and I think that this is a good thing, basically. And then now everyone, but but the way people talk about it is they're like. So, we all d- were only talking about authorial intent, and then this one guy, Roland Bart, came along and said, hey, guys, let's maybe not do that, and now, today, we know better.
2: Yeah, no, exactly, right? Like, people, people have this Thanks very to linear Roland perspective.
1: Bart. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, it's this linear perspective of how, like, you know, media and criticism and even just discourse in general develops when it really isn't linear at all. Uh, so... I mean, I guess this gets to the the kind of end of this thought train, which is like, I'm sure the way people talked about Plato back in Plato's heyday is not <laughs> the way we talk about him now, you know, like it's just but there's no fucker. real way to 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 view this linear perspective of how discourse evolves when in reality, it's just chaos and noise. No. all the time.
0: The idea that it's oh it's, it's it's fascinating how like something like Star Wars even like becomes like this monolith <laughs> where everyone has the same opinion and it is just a legend. It is just a classic period, and it's like that's definitely not what it was like <laughs> when it came out. Like that's definitely that's yeah. not how anything works. But like I had to yeah. I had to uh, grapple very directly with authorial intent and death the author and so on, obviously because like in the entirety of the B-Stars video I am doing a read that I do not necessarily think is the point of B-Stars and I'm doing that willingly and know- knowingly despite the many people that will like obviously act like I'm misinterpreting it as if I didn't know what I was <laughs> doing in the video and so on but very specifically Everything um, actually, I Lagoshi L- L- never actually
1: uh, is romantically <laughs> attracted to a guy.
0: Every single fucking reply is like, he gets engaged with the rabbit girl. What the fuck are you talking about? And I'm like, that's not even the conversation I'm having, <laughs> sir. That's not even the point of any of this. Th- th-
1: th- thanks for thanks for the clickbait. I award uh, you zero points.
0: Yeah, I need to have every. I need to have an infuriating clickbait like. This isn't even what the video is about, but it'll make bad faith comments happen that annoy me forever on every video because clearly it's good for the algorithm, but because uh, yeah. it clearly worked. Oh, dude! But what dude, happened? What, but what,
1: uh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll let you finish. But Yeah, but, but
0: it's just that what happened after that though is like I, I got like fifteen thousand words deep into the the Adastra video before I clicked for me for a moment where I'm like, oh. Everything I've discussed so far is a thing where realistically the creator will not ever see the thing I'm talking about. And so I'm just engaging with step media the way that people normally engage with media, which is that some phantom creative team makes a thing. And then completely separate from that, you have your reaction to the thing. And you share the same audience, but you never cross spheres. But then I realized my new video is about a thing that is written by one person and I think there might have been an editor that got involved at some point. I actually don't even know if there is an editor at all for <laughs> for At Astra or if it was genuinely written by one person completely and exclusively. And then someone else did art and someone else did background art and someone else did the interfaces and someone else chose the music. Uh, and it's like I'm like, this is such a small indie project. There is a very non zero chance that the creator will watch this video and. And perhaps most horrifyingly of all, respond to it.
3: <laughs> and, uh,
0: and it's like one, just like with the just like with the B stars video. My analysis of a thing and what's significant about what happens in the story does not is not contingent on whether or not it was intended by the author, except at times where I imply the intent of the author because I'm just grasping at the idea of like this seems to be like the point in like or especially when you're like if you're like saying somebody's kind of a genius for something or like this, or here's what was so clever about what they did. And like, they could easily just as much be like, yeah, nah, I didn't even think about any of that. <laughs> what? <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> I, like, I think it's like when I think Chuck Palahniuk or whatever, the creator of fight club. uh, I, I probably got the last name wrong. Like talked about like, how it da- right. how, like David Finch, like brought, like brought out themes in his work that he didn't even know were in it when he adapted it into mm-hmm. a movie. And it's like, Sometimes maybe the creator's best thing they could do is just quietly be like, "Uh huh, yeah, yeah, exactly." Definitely meant to do that.
2: (laughs) Well, it's it's interesting because Chuck Palahniuk too, like you know, people read Bad Faith, you know, discourse essentially into Fight Club for so long, and that was also expanded by the movie's release because the movie was such a huge hit. And then, like nowadays, Chuck Palahniuk is like, "Yeah, uh, I thought I wrote a book at one about one thing, and then like I publicly came out as gay, and now if you read Fight Club, like every time I read Fight Club now, I think it's a gay novel about being gay and what masculinity means in a gay context. And like literally, no one, not even Chuck Palahniuk, was saying that when it first came out, you know. And yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny we talk about meta evolving, but like critical discourse as a meta too (laughs) and it's funny to see how it changes over time
1: but the uh the The optimal strat for for (laughs) getting people to respond to your discourse
0: (laughs) (laughs) well now i'm out haha the uh Mm -hmm. the whole behind the scenes thing is i i cut an entire chapter from the essay where i bring up inio asano's downfall a book by Mm inio asano not his personal downfall. <laughs> right. But it's a it's a distressing single volume manga that feels autobiographical as dangerous as it can be to read into things as being autobiographical or not. Uh but it is about a mangaka who hates himself and hates the things that he works on and hates people's responses to the things that he works on, which is a bit of a thing for a mangaka to make. Uh and it's in like spoilers for this book, I guess, but it's not really a plot book at all it's just a series <laughs> of just it's just an episode of this guy's life and his misery but like it has and it's, especially this especially is not even the story of the thing it's just what it ends on is this note of like he's at a signing because it's somebody who finished a popular series that he hated working on and he's working and he's trying to come up with a purpose for his life and i think next thing to like to work on essentially and he's at a he it ends at a book signing for this property that he fucking despises and there's this young girl who wants is there to have her book signed and she's just gushing over this thing that like changed her life and was incredible and so impactful and it really helped her get through the, the like tough times and like that kind of like conversation that you have about creative works oftentimes and he's just like fucking idiot you don't get it at all and then the the fucking (laughs) manga just ends (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it just ends on that note and i'm like oh i'm writing about like i just read this manga and i'm like i'm currently writing about a gay furry adult visual novel that uh broke me and kind of directly led to this sort of like impulsive coming out and was like the straw that broke the camel's back or whatever and the creator can just respond to what i say about it (laughs) Mm it's kind of terrifying so i and it was like a to get to it did this is like a response to several topics we brought up today but like it was like a kill your darlings moment where i cut this chapter because it ultimately wasn't like part of the the like momentum of the overall video. But I had to like vent write it to get through writing the rest of the video because like <laughs> yeah, it's just it was it just a weird headspace to be in,
2: yeah, definitely, I mean, it's interesting too, because uh, I mean, especially in the furry space, right like i mean you're you're speaking about Adastra and things where um how do i how do I explain this like things where the creators are are very accessible, right? But then we also it's interesting in the furry context because furries, I think as a community, are often more accessible to each other than a lot of other like communities, right? Like you can be an author of a published novel and go to conferences and you know, be in offices of publishers and, like, never meet your darlings, right? Like, you can can never meet your heroes. It's totally possible for Stephen King to have never met John Green or something like this, right? But in the furry space, especially if you're going to furry conventions or on furry Twitter or, like, are commissioning artists, you have a very direct and personal chance of meeting these people whose works very drastically affect your life because even though the furry fandom is huge... It's small comparative to, uh, you know, larger, more established and institutionalized industries. So that's also like an interesting minefield to navigate because, uh, you know, without getting into it, it's totally possible to like meet someone whose work you fucking love uh, in the furry fandom and then just find out that you like cannot stand them or their takes or you know anything <laughs> like that, even if it's not controversial. Like I'm not talking about someone being an awful person. I'm just saying like. Man, there are so many artists who I would like love to commission and then I commission them. And then like two weeks later, I unfollow them because I'm like, I just don't like what you talk about. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Which doesn't necessarily happen in the same way when, you know, it comes to Stephen King or something like, of course, there are celebrities and there are actors and art authors who you follow and they say something bad and then you unfollow them. But like. There is less of a direct chance of you forming an actual relationship with them that is impacted by this than there is in, you know, the furry space or even in like indie games or uh, YouTube let's players or other parasocial environments that the modern Internet has sort of enabled.
0: Well, i done that, too. <laughs> it's very different i sorry like nowadays. i'm sorry
2: keith i'm gonna have to unfollow you for all of your bad takes
1: <laughs> it was just what's part right, uh, time you just li- follow li- someone literally gallery. like i'm i'm so bad at reaching out to people that just on a whim when i saw that like keith um like was a furry uh, video essayist who branched out of topics that were just the furry fandom I was like maybe I should reach out maybe I should give this networking thing a try <laughs> it's and terrifying. literally that was the, <laughs> literally that was the message that I sent to him like hi i've noticed you're a furry video essayist i am too I think that this is how networking works. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: exactly, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's
2: a I mean it, it ends up working out too, though. It's right? fucking
0: weird in this space. It's so weird <laughs> because like half the time it's like a weird parasocial relationship thing where like because YouTube's so comically fragmented, you can be very aware of someone and you're like, are we peers? Is this a thing? Do I <laughs> should I reach out to this person? Especially in the bizarre element of, like, if you're a Let's Player, like, for the years before I had any video essays out so that were, like, their own, like, scripted works, it was just, like, what I do is you just hang out and talk for a while, like, this, too, or, like, but with video games most of the time, and, like, that's kind of, like, a weird, like, like play date thing, like, you're, like, trying to, like... <laughs> like hi will you be my trial friend <laughs> like,
3: like, <laughs> like because
0: we don't Are my don't, friend like, on like, friend probation yeah <laughs> we don't like we don't like pretend to get along like this is a th- we this is when you do less us so you just actually get along with people hopefully and that's like the point is you're hanging out and and playing games and, and that's what collaborations are in that particular field and so like w- with certain gaming related people they're like i have I've had a slew of embarrassing emails over the years where I would just reach out to this or that creator and attempt networking and uh, either get shut down or completely ignored. And I've also completely ignored a few people uh, over the years. And it's just like a really weird thing to navigate. And it's like you don't know what to do half the time. because It's like you don't want to well, articulate I mean, like, why you didn't respond to somebody. Uh Yeah. And you never know if the people you didn't respond to you didn't respond to you because they just didn't even see it. And there's just an endless spam of stuff <laughs> or if they just <laughs> exactly. specifically don't like something about you or they've heard something about you or they looked didn't like what they saw. Or if you message someone on Twitter, you don't know if they because Twitter secretly has like this. So there's the real inbox of DMs. Then there's the request inbox of DMs. Then there's the super secret extra inbox of DMs that you don't get email notifications for, which is that you have to scroll to the bottom of all of your requests that you haven't like deleted or whatever, and then a then it says a show more that is like a spam box, which can be full of legitimate people and and, and not like bots and so on. And if you it's every now and then I'll I'll scroll like do the archival work of getting into that spot to find that place and I'm like, "Oh, Yeah, I didn't see this person for three months.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's funny, too, because like on one hand, sending out those, you know, random, hey, you want to network with me is like how you get James Somerton to voice Legoshi in your essay. But then like I joined, you know, the collaborators of the server because I happened to be in the right place at the Mm -hmm. right time and taught you how to use VR chat. Like there's no rhyme or reason <laughs> to how you actually integrate or become a content creator or like collaborate with people. You just happen to do it sometimes, and ninety five percent of the time, it's just raw chance that you happen to catch someone's attention at the right time.
0: Makes everyone try to shoot their shot, <laughs> and you're like, oh god,
2: exactly. <laughs> no.
0: Everyone's trying to break down the audience versus creator barrier. It's just a lot. Like Definitely. last time, I let you all in. You didn't behave. <laughs> you cannot just. You can't just let random people in uh, onto the show unfiltered. They do not. They do not behave themselves. They get the chance to troll, and they immediately do that. Yep. <laughs> There's a reason why we don't I mean, use it's... the uh, audience can type directly onto the stream features of like Jackbox Three that mysteriously never yep. came back in future Jackboxes. <laughs>
2: and that's why i am i am completely edited out of every single episode of all of the let's plays we're in because i'm just too loose of a canon and i wasn't (laughs) vetted before i joined the channel yeah i don't know it's it's interesting it's that was a joke by the way i am i have only been in the videos that i'm published in Heath does not edit me out of unless uh, i mean you don't check unless <laughs> uh, yeah. how, how would yeah, we verify actually,
1: this information
2: this wonderful this podcast, podcast with only keith has edited himself and toaster out completely uh we'll construct a post-mortem video essay out of this just out of voice lines from cookie um <laughs> you're gonna use
1: this to train like an ai voice thing (laughs) to 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 make a video essay on on like ad astra where it's like oh yeah it's really good and i liked it and the prose was great (laughs) and then you can be like see this you know barely notable book critic really likes ad astra that makes my Um, opinion more correct (laughs) (laughs) yeah
2: Oh, man. yeah. We'll I still, de- have, de- we'll de- I still haven't voice knuckled, down and,
1: knuckled down and played slash read at Astra, but I am looking forward to it, and my expectations are extremely high. I'm sure that won't backfire.
2: <laughs> 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 oh, man. It's been a while since I've read a visual novel. I mean, I guess the last one I read was Echo, yeah, now that I think about it, and it's been about five months, six months sounds about right maybe longer it's been it's been like seven months lately i've just been reading actual books as i said i went nice. on nice uh, i don't I went even on have a pictures of chess and, on them
0: how do you get through them
2: yeah well the one of the books that i'm reading right now uh night film by marisha Pessel is sort marisha of uh, hi- uh, oh Pesce wait no that thinking. is an l isn't it is it an l or an i i, I i'll fucking... have to look it up i think it's an l <laughs> um but uh it is an L, yes. Um, I, I've i been reading Night Film, and that's like a sort of hypertext fiction, again, it's kind of similar to uh, what we were talking about earlier, um, where the book it is, itself... It is
1: Pestle. Oh, my God.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I called has... her Marisha Pessy in my video. I'm so uh. embarrassed. <laughs> it has uh, like an app that you use Uh, granted the app is no longer works because it was made for old devices, but you can find an archive on the internet of all of these like QR codes basically that you could scan in the book and then get uh, like news articles that are being referenced in the text or like sound clippets or, or or videos um, that relate to the ongoing narrative. And that's been really interesting. Um, But yeah, that's like, that's the book that I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying. But uh, yeah, over the past few months, I've just been reading actual, straight up novels i've been getting use out of my kindle uh which for a while was just not happening because everything in my life has been so busy for the past like three months
1: i think i i have to come to terms with the fact that i am actually like the clumsiest reader i know i had to re-record <laughs> the entire segment of my video on s because i pronounced uh-huh. the mysterious author character's name Straska. Even though there's no second S in his surname. Like, I was just like the entire time going Strasker and then looked on a whim, decided to look up what have other people said about this book and saw people pronouncing it Straka. And I was like, wait, uh-huh. there's no second S in his name? I read the entire book and didn't realize. Well, it to be a struggle too. Like,
2: I relate to that so deeply. Like, it's ridiculous. I, I once wrote an essay about pathologic. Two, where I went very deep and like did a lot of research on the Russian and then step culture uh, linguistics going on, so that I could pronounce the various step words really correctly. Um, like for example, there's a lot of words that start with kh, which if you read them phonetically, a lot of people read them as like k, but it's actually like h. So like there's a word in, in pathologic that a lot of people read as katanger, which is actually pronounced <laughs> katanger, um, which is like great. But then I like totally forgot about that. And the the town that Pathologic t- takes place on is called the town on Gorkon. But I just pronounced it as the town on Gorkon the whole way through. <laughs> and it's just like sometimes that just fucking happens. You just like can't, can't be asked to go back through. People will be clumsy when they're reading. It's fine. I just I uploaded 200
0: videos of just getting corrected the whole time. I just plowed <laughs> exactly. through all three game, all three routes of the first game, and then the sequel, and everyone's just like, "Yeah, no, no, this is how I, this is pronounced. What the fuck is wrong with yeah. you? I'm, like,
2: I'm not, <laughs> I'm not Russian. I can't." Oh, I'm positive that like probably ten of those comments are me just being like, "Oh, hey, just so you know, this is how <laughs> this is pronounced," without like, even realizing that I'm doing it. Like, well, just as engaging, Toaster is aware,
0: engage. I confided in him specifically for at Astra to be like. Okay, you're more of a linguist than I am. How the fuck do you pronounce any of these names? I need to <laughs> I need to get as correct as possible.
2: Yeah, I mean, for that stuff, I just kind of looked up things, and I'm sure none of that would even match the authorial intent, right? Like, what if, uh, you, you know, just using this as an example, like, I'm pretty sure in ancient Roman, which is the language that this is, that it is based off of, or classical Roman, I should say, or Latin, um, like, virginia would be pronounced virginia but like i very highly doubt that would have generated comments exactly like (laughs) everyone would be losing their shit if i pronounced it virginia exactly like i doubt that howley was thinking like oh yes like her name is virginia or just like kato versus kato Kato. what is wrong with um stuff like that like at some point you just have to look it up and be like okay i'm gonna go with this and say it's right the pharaoh neferu Yeah. Or, like, I mean, Kemia is like a great example. Like, if, if Neferu is supposed to be Egyptian, then KH would be pronounced H. So it would be Kemia, not Kemia or Kemia. And, but now like, with, how and much now of this Echo, do we, know?
0: we have a tug of war between me and the comments of whether or not it's pronounced Micah or Misha.
2: Yeah. I, in my head, it's Misha. But then, like, at the same time, like, is his name Leo Alvarez or Leo Alvarez? <laughs> You know, like the, there's a lot of nuance George here or Jorge. that is just, exactly, George or Jorge, uh, Jesus or Jesus, you know, like it's hard <laughs> to tell. So sometimes you just have to roll with it and say whatever.
0: <laughs> it's, it's, pronunciation's a nightmare and it's not worth even trying. The end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I what, mean, I, you know what I said, mean. That being said, if you. <laughs> that's it.
2: Exactly. That being said, if you pronounce Japanese incorrectly, I will correct you just because that's a pet peeve of mine.
0: I think that's stupid.
2: It is stupid.
0: <laughs> I think it's... Ver- but I'm, I, I, I'm taking time, a stand. Every time <laughs> I've ever played a JRPG and somebody has pr- pr- corrected me about the pronunciation of the names of the characters and, like, they're saying it right in front of you. How are you getting it wrong? And I'm like, first of all, if you speak English and, and not Japanese, the Japanese line reads are incomprehensible to the point where you can't even spot the <laughs> names in them most of the time. And, like, mm-hmm. at some level, I'm like, wait... But the Japanese voice acting constantly uses English and their yep. English is horribly wrong. So why mm-hmm. is my Japanese have to be better than their English comment section? What's going on here? Like, yeah. this is what J- is the standard
2: Japanese English loan words are very, very hard for for Westerners to follow and to, to pronounce correctly, because we have this gut reaction to think like, oh, the word comes from english so i should pronounce it like english but like in actual spoken japanese uh just like using an example the also their names like they don't
0: pronounce our names as well oh, as no, i yeah. pronounce their names so
3: no why,
2: way. what exactly. is the standard well it's it's just funny because like I, th- I think about this a lot where if so the japanese word for apartment is apato as in like apartamento apartment but if I were to, in the middle of a Japanese sentence, be like, ah, oh, boku no apartment, people would be like, what the fuck are you saying? <laughs> they don't understand because that's not how their language works. Um,
1: and like this, I mean, it, like m- most foreign words get anglicized when they yep. get put into English as well, <laughs> right? Exactly. Except schadenfreude. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. We just really
0: just stuck with that. Just a real mouthful of German that we just do like they have a word for this very specific emotion where you take pleasure in the pain of others. And we're not going to interrogate that. We're just going to take the full word wholesale and stick
3: with it.
2: It's just it's funny. It's funny to get into this. But by the way, I was completely joking about correcting people on Japanese pronunciation. I do not know. But yeah, but the other people aren't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, people do that so much.
2: Oh, yeah, completely uh it's people will take any opportunity to show off how smart they are and i love it because your comments are engagement don't forget (laughs) to like and subscribe
0: of all of my of all the things i do the greatest crime i can do is one pronounce the in the middle of any japanese name or two (laughs) incorrectly guess the gender of a monster hunter monster (laughs) (laughs) those are like the two most commented things that have ever happened outside of like saying the last jedi is good like it is so much like to the point where i had to like as as a gag just have like a scrolling text field of all of the comments people's made about the same thing in monster hunter but just the gender of one monster i'm like guys i'm just playing a game it's just called a thing it's a dragon it's it's fine jesus christ
2: Well, it's like it's like when you go to someone's house that you've never been to before and you meet their pet dog and you're like, oh, how old is he? And they're like, "Mm, that's a she. And you're like, "Okay, but like I literally just saw your dog's face for two seconds just now. Like I I, sometimes it just happens. Sorry.
0: The hard corrections a bit much. You can always just literally just respond with normal sentences where you happen to gender them correctly and then people will just pick up like oh that's that's the the hint we're getting here and then you just quietly adjust without ever actually having a conversation about it yeah
2: and i mean i'm not even trying to to get into like gender discourse here it's just more like like you're talking about a digimon or a pokemon like (laughs) sure they might be they might be sexually dimorphic in the grand scheme of things like female pikachus have a heart-shaped tail but like yeah, but people just think of Ash's as Pikachu. So if I see a Pikachu in the game, I'd be like, "Oh, look at it! It's a Pikachu!" You know, yeah. it's whatever.
0: Well, right? in, in Monster Hunter, it's the uh, everything can be male or female except strange exceptions out of nowhere. Like black rat, black Diablos is always female in Heat specifically, and and the flagship monsters Rathlos and Rathian are Rathlos is always male and Rathian is always female. And they're separate mm-hmm. names and appearances but not that different of appearances it's basically I mean, the people, same char- the same monster people
2: who can play piano in Resident Evil are always female that's how they're sexually dimorphic <laughs> you determine gender you put
0: a piano yep. in front of the baby exactly, that's the gender reveal exactly. party the piano has fireworks <laughs> in it
2: Capcom <laughs> has, has great great track record with with capturing character gender here so good for them <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll put your poison discourse to the rest. Just put a fucking piano in front of that fighting game character.
2: <laughs> we'll know once and for all. <laughs> Good job, Capcom. You've set a standard. <laughs> oh, man. It's just vile. But, but yeah, it's just kind of funny. I mean, getting these kind of uh, corrections in your YouTube comments, I think, is part of the YouTube meta of just in, in informing and creating constant engagement.
0: We're like in the the last half an hour. We have not talked about furry like at all.
2: Oh, we can talk about furry. Quick, how did you become Uh, a furry? Oh, this is a fun one. How How did you become a furry?
1: Me? Yes. Sure. (laughs) Um. Well, my my first ever crush, and this probably says a lot, was Tiny the Tiger from the Crash Bandicoot series. When I was like single digit years old.
0: Man. (laughs)
1: Yeah. That probably should have that probably should have um uh informed me of the direction my life is was headed. Um he, he is both shaped like and looks like a Dorito. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that's a fun one about me. Um yeah, and I yeah. That's that's the only sort of notable thing about like how I ended up becoming a furry. I think it was just kind of um kind of inevitability after that considering that you know um, the grew up, grew up with the internet generation mm-hmm. well the first one <laughs> there's another uh, one now the sequel grew up grew up my... with the internet generation the sequel <laughs>
2: <laughs> my my entrance into the fandom was pretty uh lifelong um uh, one of my close relatives is the creator of a Extraordinarily prolific and famous anthropomorphic character based comic book series that then spun off into an extraordinarily popular series of TV shows and films. You can probably do the math on that to figure out which series I am talking about. It does not particularly need to be discussed for privacy reasons, but. Uh, Long story short, uh, anthros and furries have been a part of my life for a very long time, and uh, I didn't really have a fursona until a few years ago when I started to really, like, embrace it and stuff, but I think for me it was just a matter of, like, this is a normal thing, and, like, like, I remember first seeing, like, anthrocon footage um, and, like, having relatives talk about going to furry conventions for work reasons, Um, you know, as young as, like, seven or eight years old um and probably honestly earlier um and so it's always been on my radar but then over time um I started to identify with it more because I just like found it charming and found it to be an easy way to express oneself and like find media that was interesting uh and and like pleasant to look at and stuff and uh you know without getting too controversial here like Furries have been the best at organizing information and having databases of art. And, I mean, just to put put it plainly, the furries invented porn tagging before anyone else did. They were the <laughs> best at creating a database of anything. Um, and part of that is like, because... We, like,
1: we have so many, like different fetishes we need to organize this (laughs) exactly like we need somebody needs to be able to to separate the peas from the carrots yeah
2: so i mean and but that that goes without saying that's not just porn i bring that up as, as mostly a joke but like you know for affinity and then later on image boards and things like that were just so much better for accessibility um and tracking and figuring out what you liked and finding artists that you identified with and that you were interested in Um, Not just for pornography, but for actual comics and and art and stuff that you're interested in um, than any other fandom or medium ever. Like literally nothing else has as good taxonomy and like even just like ontology in terms of like how we discuss things and how we how we define things than the the furry fandom. So that kind of was a pipeline, I think, for me into becoming more uh, into it and then just kind of developed from there uh I always joke about this but like you know furries are in IT so well like someone needs to some furry out there needs to make a tag based uh video porn site to just take down the monopoly of like you porn and in all these terrible porn sites that exist where you can't search for anything because Boy, do we have that industry on lock in a way that no other (laughs) fandom or demographic has. Like, we're so close to to gaining the monopoly on it that we may as well take over. It's very
0: funny how it's just a reliable tool. Like, if I'm like, I really want to retweet that one. Like, this happened, like, yesterday. I was like, I really want to retweet that that fucking Echo comic about Chase's goatee. But how do I find it? I know. I'll go on the porn site and I'll type Chase Hunter comic. and it'll come right up and then it literally in the sidebar has a link to the tweet that is the source so i can go directly to the tweet and retweet the tweet (laughs) because furries also carry care a lot about properly sourcing all artwork and that and that's a thing that i try to stick to also it's like it is not considered okay in this fandom slash community to download pictures and then just post them as tweets and so on like You you find the tweet and you share the tweet specifically so that the sourcing goes back to the person uh and i was like so i'm like i gotta i gotta track it down and twitter also is unsearchable but you know what ser- you know what the best search engine for twitter is is the furry porn <laughs> <foreign> site
2: <Yep. laughs> i it mean works. it's amazing too though it's like it's useful for finding people too like there there have definitely been times where like i'm at a furry convention and i'm like i think i recognize that suitor, but like i don't know why i recognize their character so or their persona. so i go to the site and i search like red underscore fur jackal (laughs) male solo and then like find a picture of someone i'm like oh that's that's who this person is i know now and then i can be like oh hey i like you know i love your twitter account or whatever uh and it just it makes it easy to network honestly (laughs) like speaking about networking there's it's so easy to find and figure out who people are and like find out how to get uh you know uh social access to them, at least because it's in a way you've already seen everyone (laughs) in a weird way. You can recognize anyone.
0: And for me, I I, I, I detailed this a bit in like the B stars video, I guess, but like if you go all the way back, I guess my first fictional crush was probably Gambit from like the X-Men animated series. So it's not Mm -hmm. straight Mm -hmm. up furry. Uh, But I was like, I was just like, I'm really fixated on this character and I don't know why. This character that wears like a trench coat, where underneath they have like pink armor, and they're extremely flamboyant and showy. <laughs> and it's like, like, like the, I, I have, a, I literally have a Gambit figurine on my shelf alongside what is mostly just furry shit. Otherwise, it's like Simon and Belmont, Gambit, and like fifty monsters. Not fifty. I don't have that many monsters. I don't have that many figures. But uh, like once upon a time, I insisted on having Kimari in my party for all of Final Fantasy 10. Uh, I <laughs> like I. I when I got the preview Game Informer issue for Oblivion, there was just a big photo of a muscular minotaur character, and I just kept going back to that page for some reason, just curious about it, just wanted to look at it more. And then uh, when the Van Helsing movie came out, I bought like the novelization. And, like, read that and so on. And it just, like, at some point led to me, like, looking up werewolves on in, like, middle school on, like, the internet. I'm like, oh, check out this internet thing where you can find images of a thing instead of thinking about the same images a lot. Uh, and <laughs> then that led to just find, discovering furries that have been around forever because they're older than I am. And that's pretty old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they've just been around forever. And so I just sort of drifted through the uh, the furry stuff for a while and still am and never that seems pretty stuck but uh yeah. I, mean, I have i have this theory that, that i don't, up... i want to talk about more with people sometime and mm-hmm. like if i ever make a video about the fandom itself this might be something to interrogate because i have a theory about my own experience that it's this idea that like because being gay is so stigmatized it, there might be a specific appeal, like, like it's like an excuse, like you're getting away with something not even know, like, like an excuse you can tell to yourself that this isn't the thing that's bad is like looking at a bunch of like muscular, masculine beast men in fiction m- might feel like a more ac- acceptable way to like satisfy something that you like mentally you're like you you're drawn to. Whereas like if you like it's like massively taboo to like be actually like going after like like thinking about actual men and and, like fantasizing about actual men. But like in this weird sort of like tangential way where you're you're a confused teenager that doesn't even know what they're thinking half the time. You can like find yourself drifting towards this thing in denial because it feels like a more acceptable expression of this idea. Like, no, I just really like werewolves. Just love just love werewolves. And I've talked to a few people (laughs) that have different versions of this. And I I think it might be kind of like the undercurrent of why the furry community is just so fucking gay. But uh, more research required for correlation. It's funny that you bring this
2: up because everyone knows who their first furry crush is. Like, I feel like that's (laughs) a question you can ask any furry and they will immediately know the answer because it's such a universal experience. Like... I mean, for me, mine was Banjo. Like, I just it's it was it's so instant that in retrospect, I'm like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> so obvious. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just funny. It just happens.
0: It's like the the famous furry comic. I don't even know. Was that? A, is it a, I don't know if that's even an edited meme or what, but it's the. Uh, oh, yeah, there it is. It's a uh, I found it. The <laughs> the, uh, the famous comic of like a kid watching Robin Hood. With the fox oh, and he's tied yeah, up, the... and he and the kid just says, "I feel weird."
2: <laughs> oh man, is that an Adam Ellis comic? I think it is.
0: Uh, let's see. Nothing better than Disney's Robin Hood to activate the trigger. Furries know your meme.
3: <laughs>
2: uh, I could be wrong. Maybe it doesn't I'm, look I think like Adam Ellis. I think I'm thinking of the Batman one. I think his was Batman.
0: Yeah, there's, there's that's funny. some of these things are in, an, I'll post it in chat, but some of these are like endless conversations with each other iterating on an idea.
2: Yeah. Oh, man. But yeah, I feel like it's a universal experience, right? <laughs> like we all stumble into the same thing and that's how we form this odd community that we formed.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the uh, that's definitely the usual thing about when they have like documentaries that interview early Uh, early furry community people that started coming together at conventions, it was the collective realization that they all shared a common interest in this specific thing, despite having no way of previously communicating with each other. Like, it was simultaneously... And obviously, it's, like, incredibly obvious if you just look through, like, the history of, like, fables and legends and, and like, fairy tales and so on, that, like, anthropomorphic animal characters are just an ever-present thing across cultures forever. Mm -hmm. Uh... And then this is just like the the very specific way that it's like the community has collectively evolved now that it's like joined together online because it took the very specific form of being gay as shit.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting too. Like you bring up conventions. So in the past few months, I've been to more furry conventions and more furry meets recently, just trying to get more involved in the local scene. And it's it's intriguing too because people forget When they're all online, that like the furry community is like extraordinarily diverse in terms of interests. Like a lot of us are united by our interest in furry art, but like the furry community as a whole is actually like twenty-seven thousand other tiny communities that are just like happen to be linked by this one thing. Uh, And so, like I've been going to an event um, in Southern California called Maw, which I don't really know much about it. I don't know how often it's happened um but it's held at a barcade that has like a lot of rhythm games so there's like a lot of rhythm game community people that like hang out there that like aren't even furries they just like hang out because it's a fun time and so you have like this interesting cross-pollination of like two different uh fandoms that like have come together under the banner of this like furry meetup that happens every few months in Southern California, just because like, why not just hang out with this many people who are all going to be playing rhythm games. And there's like some fighting game people there that I've met as well. And, you know, going to furry conventions as well. I went to further confusion, which is held in San Francisco, um, or not San Francisco. It's like San Jose or something, but same general area. Um, and it was really interesting because I went there and like, that's where I met Sonic Fox and like, that's where like I met a bunch of like fighting game people that like I had no idea were furry or like related to this, but they all went because like there was a game room and you could play fighting games there. And like, if Sonic Fox is going to be there, why not play against other pros? And so like, it's like a weird marriage of like your own interests and like the furry aspect of it, especially at conventions is really just a vector for meeting other people that you normally wouldn't cross paths with. Which is just so interesting uh, and, and like a really fascinating aspect of the culture that you don't really get at other really specific conventions. Um, you know, I mean, you definitely get it at like, you know, anime conventions. And I'm sure people have their niche interests and meetups at like gaming conventions and stuff. But, you know, if you're going to a tattoo expo, generally a lot of the people are going to have the same big hobbies in common. Uh, whereas at furry conventions, like the furry aspect of it is really only one aspect of what they're into. And it caters to a lot of different hobbies and a lot of outside of the anthro. That was know, a that was jump
0: scare. Did you hear that?
2: <laughs> no. What?
0: Is just me? That was weird.
2: Probably just you.
1: <laughs> My mic might be picking up some
0: cards oh. outside. Oh, it came back. I thought it played over Discord. There was a it was the first microsecond of the do Windows thing, and it played oh. in sync with your stuff. So I thought it came through somehow. <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: no! No, box. I'm just
0: i have just derailed for something that's not really done anything. It's my fault.
2: <laughs> this will be edited know. out in post. No, it, it won't. Be. <laughs> you
0: know how time like consuming it this... is to listen back to this thing and be like, oh, what should I remove stuff from this?
2: <laughs> oh man, this episode is gonna be gonna be so off the rails. Sorry, listeners. <laughs>
0: How? What does that even mean? No, this is way more on topic than normal for this podcast. I feel, I Have you feel heard like it we before? had like
2: an an hour and a half of discussion about lit crit discourse before we even got into the topic we said we would lead with. Which is That just means stuff. it's on
0: topic. We were really on topic on that topic for like an hour.
1: <laughs> That's more focused it than usual. It wasn't even lit crit discourse. It was like video game, competitive That's video true. game discourse for ages. <laughs>
2: So what, whenever I come on the podcast, I invariably make it the guilty gear hour. So sorry, listeners, once again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is just the vibe. That was the thing. Mm-hmm. This, this is what the th- this the whole show is like. This it's always like this. The uh, I only retroactively desperately try to come up with a thumbnail and a, and a title for the thing, (laughs) trying to even make sense of what the thing is that we talked about for often, like, three hours in some cases. And I'm just like, and then people are like, where the fuck is the part where he even talks about Elden Ring? I'm like, ha-ha,
2: gotcha. (laughs) It's exactly 200 minutes in. (laughs) Just absolute engagement trap. It's just,
0: you gotta gotta put a label on it somehow. (laughs) You can't just, no one wants to click on Dialect Choices number 75- whatever man <laughs> <laughs> just an episode just an episode with no labeling of any kind <laughs>
2: but yeah it's interesting i mean i feel i feel like the podcasts. uh you know, we generally find our way to a theme. I guess today's theme was like, what are you reading, playing, and furry analyzing? Yeah. So I guess that's pretty good.
1: I, re- I really hope the last five minutes of this podcast aren't us, dis- aren't us discussing this episode of the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it can be. We have the power. Just get a meta textual oh, about it. We are listening to the podcast while burning the bo- podcast for light so that we can consume the podcast. <laughs>
1: Oh, we should do. We should, find, we should find a way to like loop around so we can listen to the beginning of the recording <laughs> while we're still recording it. We just and can... then just give a running, then just give a running like director's commentary of the same <laughs> episode of the podcast. This podcast is we just become An, inc- an the...
0: increasingly esoteric <laughs> series of references to the beginning of this podcast <laughs> <laughs> looping oh, onto itself God. until we're talking about the fact that we're refer- referring to the podcast. In itself, later when it loops back around again, like fucking Bo Burnham responding to his own video (laughs) and then responding to his
1: own video and then responding to his own video. (laughs) Literally a Bo Burnham gag, except instead of being two minutes long, it's several hours. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just incomprehensible.
2: This episode of the podcast is the inside of Keith Ballard podcast. Yeah, Good it's job. the equivalent of it's, it's the equivalent of doing That's row row row
0: your boat for the duration of an EFAP episode. <laughs> <laughs> no one knows what. Oh, I'm, God. This is becoming
2: increasingly what? incomprehensible. <laughs> it's so niche. We have al- we have successfully alienated everyone from the podcast. All yeah. right, goodbye everyone. Which Good job.
0: So- which is itself is an early Daniel Tosh bit before the show, when he used to make, make a joke so long that eventually only one guy's laughing, and then he just pointed at that we guy. We have now
2: completely <laughs> aged ourselves by referencing Daniel Tosh. Yeah, remember when Daniel no Tosh didn't have a the show and knows. just
0: was a weirdly smiling, slightly terrifying man? Oh, <laughs> uh, man. He just plastered that look on. <laughs> Looked a little bit too much like Toby Turner. Uh, hey, hey, Zoomers, we're old. <laughs> Did you know that we're old? It, we played Street Fighter two.
2: Oh God.
1: <laughs> Did Zoomers know who Toby Turner is.
2: No, <laughs> only, absolutely only not. Only from like
1: the
0: seeing videos about his downfall, where he's <laughs> it's oh, yeah, it's yeah, incredibly yeah. depressing and dark now. We're like oh, no. the, the the rise and fall of. <laughs> Yeah, and not even just the normal like being a has-been stuff, but like he's taken bizarrely dark turns and it's just a sad thing to look at. We're like, this guy is a bad person.
2: <laughs> okay. We're going <laughs> to reference two people that really aren't relevant anymore, but I it, yeah. I went years confusing him with Total Biscuit, which are very different oh. people.
1: Yeah, I mean, total total biscuit is, in a sense, not relevant anymore. Oh no, <laughs> but that's, that's what I mean.
2: Oh, in a no. sense, you you could put it that way if you
1: wanted.
2: <laughs> I <laughs> or, just mean talking about content creators that are no longer really creating content for an audience. Uh, <laughs> that's one way of putting it. But we turn it <laughs> but their names he was are so similar for an
0: audience still.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: Uh, uh... (laughs) (laughs) i hope that goes on my tombstone (laughs) just cloud cuckoo (laughs) country but actually it's my real name not relevant anymore (laughs) (laughs) no
2: no longer creating content
0: (laughs) the years instead of years of life it's years active like a
1: wikipedia page
2: (laughs) Oh, God.
1: Hey, oh. hey listen, uh, after the AI takeover and we're all measured by our productivity, though that actually will be how we date our tombstones.
2: It's oh, not yeah, the
0: dystopian yeah. The future it's, where we're measured yeah. by our productivity as humans.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Once it's
2: I'm not, dead, it's not, deep yeah, fake it's not my years voice. alive,
1: it's years <laughs> productive. Yeah.
2: Deepfake my voice so you can keep making content. That way I'm always alive. There you go. That's the dystopian future.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but like, after you, reti- after you retire, you have to attend your, after you retire, you have to attend your own funeral for your productivity. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your, oh your, man, your lay my YouTube channel to rest. is an AI meet and greet of
0: yourself. <laughs> oh god.
1: Yeah. Uh... uh well, the best everyone, part about atten- being everyone a attends your final episode nobody can t- <laughs> nobody attends your funeral
2: <laughs> referring to it as attending to my final episode is so <laughs> like weirdly chilling <laughs> welcome to my series finale <laughs> yeah ne- n- the weird thing about being a vtuber is that after I'm gone someone else can just play me <laughs> <laughs> That that is, has that, that happened is true, yet? Yeah. I think that it has happened. Has a YouTuber died and been scheme,
1: impersonated to keep the show I don't think, going? I think that the closest thing I remember of that is like Ed's World, where after mm-hmm. after Ed Gould, the animator and voice of the show, died, like another for for the final few episodes, another animator took over and they hired a voice actor to voice Ed, the dead guy.
2: I, that's incredible. I think it I, straight it up like continued I, for
1: like additional
0: seasons.
2: I don't. Oh, I feel I like I don't know if it continued
0: that long. I think there was a few be, more episodes. It, be, it but became I was a just whole like, thing where it, where, is, where Tom Scott yeah. picked up the show was like self funding the show due to the wishes of the family to keep Ed's World's going for another. And so he he committed to doing it for another season. And then when he was pla- like planned that as being the finale and was planning on moving on with his life and going on to his own you know legacy and not like. Constantly attending to a dead person's, a dead friend's, like thing forever, he was seen as like this person who was ruining Ed's world and abandoning Ed's world. And to this day, Ed's world is now revived again with an, with other people, and it's still going. Oh, it's still currently and going. They, and they,
1: uh, uh, that is what because the reason I even just stopped paying attention to that was just because I just couldn't get over the uncanniness of like, a person who... Like, this character who is based on a person who is now dead and who used to voice and animate that character is now being voiced and animated by somebody else. (laughs) My brain just, like yeah didn't, didn't vibe with that it could be I a very I, strange experience
0: that the self the, the, not not necessarily self-insert character because they're absurd cartoon characters but like the one that represents the creator is very it'd be like if there was like a a monty ohm character in ruby oh and then they just oh. recast him and kept the monty <laughs> ohm character around puppeteered after the creator had died <laughs> and it'd just be Dire as opposed to the idea of just continuing the show, which is common. A lot of shows continue after the creator dies. Yeah, yeah. But them having a character makes it way weirder. The
2: the time I, I feel like I've heard about this. People can uh, people can correct me in the comments uh, if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that allegedly Kizuna i the VTuber, is now played and managed by a different person than who started that channel. Now I don't know if that's actually true, which is why I said allegedly. But I think I read that recently when I was reading about the history of VTubing uh, when I was first getting into it. So I was that gonna might say, have like, happened. I was gonna
0: say like, who's alleging this? You?
2: <laughs> no, I mean I I feel like I read about it on on Wikipedia maybe or, or Twitter or something. When I was like I was like seriously deep diving like doing actual research about it, but I don't remember exactly where I read it, but it was either kizuna eye or some hollow live person or something, uh, because, like, the rights to their character are not the same as their rights to the performance of that character, so, like, they could theoretically hire someone else. to There's, like, some sort of nuance there that I'm sure I'm not describing correctly, so... Uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and, like, that's fine. It's no harassment on those people. Um, I'm not talking ill of other VTubers. It's more just... I feel like I read that somewhere, like somewhere along the line, a VTuber has, in fact, been replaced by a new voice actor for that character.
0: Where you get to the territory of of how much, like, is this that person and their show, or are they playing a character that someone else can play? Yeah, there's a whole like I, I, I don't play a character, so you can't like just be like i ah, i am the keith now it's like uh yeah i'm not this isn't a, this isn't like this isn't the colbert rapport where i'm pl- doing a bit and this is like a personality i put on like it's just <laughs> the version of me that comes out in this context and that's it yeah, but, like, I mean, but some of these youtubers the... just seem to actually be playing like a role-playing character essentially
2: yeah i think I think this gets to the complexity, especially in the furry context of like what is a persona versus an o c versus a uh, yeah person you know or even, even the first persona
0: right? versus true sona yeah like is it yeah. is the persona like, an aspirational idea of what I want to embody or is it supposed to literally
1: represent me, but I'm a fox,
2: yeah <laughs> Like, I, I have
1: got absolutely blindsided by the popularity of VTubers and I was like, because like I had spent ages being anxious of like, you know, being the guy who like represents himself with a series of PNGs on mm-hmm. YouTube yeah. and like the associated like, you know, yeah, the rant sonar, the, you know, er- everybody gangster till the cartoon critic crosses his arms. Um, till the racist you blue know. dragon crosses his arms. <laughs> yeah. Um, not naming names, of course, but <laughs> the, but, but, but like I was, I was constantly like, am I just like cringe by association? Cause even though I don't have any sprites of my, of my character crossing his arms, and I don't, like, get on the mic to spit, like, racist screeds and talk about how child labor is good, actually, with my rant sona Like, even though I'm not, <laughs> like, even though I'm not cringe, am I cringe by association <laughs> with these fucking people? Um, and then out of nowhere, just VTubers become, or maybe it's not out of nowhere and I just wasn't paying attention, but from my perspective, out of nowhere, VTubers become, like, insanely popular all of a sudden and i'm just like oh you know what i'm not i'm actually just not cringed everyone's cringe yeah exactly uh, i
2: mean yeah. vtubing it's- for me has been been like a really Im- i don't even necessarily want to say important but like impactful thing for my like my forward facing persona right like as i was about to say like toaster is me but toaster is also like a bespoke character that has his own life and and uh, aspects to him. Like he has a full name that I don't really share with people, or like things like that that like in some ways represent me, but also represent a persona that I identify with. And uh, you know, I feel like being able to step into that in the same way that I think a lot of fursuiters feel with their fursuits, allows me to be a more Interesting personality, right? Like on yeah. a Twitch stream or in a Let's Play, I feel much less self conscious about that than I do myself. And that's not even necessarily saying that I have like low self confidence. People generally see me as a relatively confident person, but um, being able to like disengage from that and like be the character that I am ostensibly playing in my VTube self isn't inauthentic, but it is different enough that I, that I like get into the right mindset, right? Like it's like a way of thinking about things. So Keith, you know, you say you're not playing a character in your videos and it's all very genuine, but there is still like an aspect of like, okay, I am performing for people now. This is a mindset that I have to think in, in order to, to be on this stage, so to speak. And I'm sure, you know, for video essays and stuff like that too, like there's got to be some degree of like, all right, I'm putting my critic hat on, and I'm like, I am viewing this through this lens and performing this lens, even if you are being your genuine, like, real self. You know what I mean? So I think that there is a line between the ingenuine playing a character that some VTubers have and the more I'm wearing a different hat today perspective that some VTubers have. And I think there's some nuance there. Um, uh, I mean, like, my
1: sort of journey of embodying my character is a little bit odd in the sense that I originally intended Cloud Cuckoo Country to be his own character that I was just the writer and actor of. And uh-huh. he was he was meant to be kind of like this... This is going to... F- this feels embarrassing to say nowadays, but he was inspired loosely by the Nostalgia Critic and other, you know, angry critics from that era sure. of the internet. um And like it was originally meant to be like he's that but for books and Mm -hmm. yeah i use him as a vector to get across opinions about books but he's a character that i play he's not meant to he's not meant to represent me but what i found was that it doesn't matter how many times i told people this is a character you know the character's Mm -hmm. name is cloud cuckoo country and my name is nick And so you refer to me as this and the things that... No, people just referred to me as Cloud Cuckoo Country... As though that was my... As though I had intended for that to be my name. They treated, you know, my behavior while in character as genuine. So eventually, even though I started out... As Cloud Cuckoo Country being a character that I played... Cloud Cuckoo Country over time just became closer to me and my actual self... Because yeah. that's just how other people would were going to interpret him, no matter what. So I thought I I made him more genuine, a genuine representation of me. And it turns out being a genuine representation of me uh, p- means that he's not negative about most things <laughs> anymore. Like I used mm-hmm. I used to do negative reviews where I would just rant about books because I thought that was fun to make. But that's not how I actually am in real life. I just find being incredibly negative and incredibly over-the-top fun. And then, but people would treat that as my actual opinions. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be genuine, I actually have to be more positive because that's how I actually am. I don't deliberately seek things out specifically to not enjoy them. Um, Instead, I, you know, typically seek things out because I enjoy them. And I talk to people about things because I enjoy them. You know, so... You know, if, if people complain of, like, you know, uh, like, oh, you used to make all of these negative reviews, what happened? And I'm like, well, you people wanted me to be genuine. Turns out I'm genuinely positive. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I'm running into that issue sort of right now, where it's, like, this is a game that I'm... My cat just sneezed all over me. Uh, <laughs> that was just really unpleasant. Um, hey, I am... Uh, I'm currently playing Sherlock Holmes Chapter One, uh, for my Twitch streams, uh, and it's doing really inexplicably well, uh, and I have a lot of criticisms about this game. I generally don't like to play games that I am not having a good time with. I I have a kind of hard rule where I finish everything I start, um, for academic criticism reasons, but, uh this Sherlock Holmes game has been a very trying experience for me to play. I, I struggle to stream it for more than a few hours at a time because it's so exhausting to me, but like people are eating it up and I definitely have been very critical of it as I play. I don't think it's like a horrible game. I don't think it's like abysmally bad or anything. It's just like, it does a lot of things that really bug me. And I've been very vocal about them because I'm playing it live and like, sometimes i'll just like mutter frustrations and it picks up in chat and then it becomes the thing that people are talking about and i'm like i'm trying really hard to avoid that negativity becoming like a keystone part of my persona because like i one i don't want people like i don't want my engagement to be purely filled fueled by me playing things that i hate because that would make (laughs) running a twitch channel exhausting and then on top of that like I don't want to be mad all the time. (laughs) Like I would like to be able to sit back and just be like in wonder about a thing that I'm really enjoying and like talk about the things that I really love because I often, here's like a philosophical bomb for the podcast. Like I generally feel like a lot of, especially media and video games can be learned to be appreciated. I don't mean this in the sense of like, Oh, you know, Bad games are actually good or like this, like terrible, horrible, like, you know, thing that was made with like really negative intentions or, uh, you know, something that's like horribly racist or something like you can tolerate that and learn to like it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying more like sometimes video games, especially film, especially um, on your first experience with it can leave you feeling really alienated. But then you can go back to it and like really mine it for something that's meaningful to you. I use Pathologic as a really great example. Pathologic is a game that's very prickly uh, and is a lot of suffering. But if you give it the time and you learn to acquire that taste, you can understand and gain meaning in that suffering and learn kind of what this game might be trying to say and get something out of that. So I really, really like to learn to appreciate things and speak about them really positively because I hope that by speaking about them positively and talking about the things that I learned to appreciate, I can teach other people how to learn to appreciate a thing that maybe they rubbed up against and didn't enjoy originally. And that's sort of the goal with presenting a lot of these games that I like. So it makes playing games that I, like, might have really legitimate negative criticisms about exhausting, because while I do like to point out like, oh, I don't like how this puzzle requires me to go through a certain amount of steps, even though the whole game is about deductive reasoning, if you can deduce the answer, why can't I just like select the answer? Why do I have to wait for the game to tell me I picked up the scissors and the tape in the right order to like reach this clue from a gameplay perspective? That's really irritating to me. But I don't want to focus on that because I don't want people to just view the channel and the let's play from this perspective of like, Oh, he's picking things apart again. That makes this truly bad. Ha ha. More bad things. This is fun. Uh, because being in that space is just so toxic and like bad for your mentality. And it creates burnout in a way that like, I just really want to avoid.
1: I do agree, but I have a very, very different attitude when it comes to, like, spending my time consuming media, though. Because I'm just of the opinion that there is so much media available these days that if I'm not enjoying something, I Mm -hmm. don't feel like I need to put in the effort to enjoy it when I can just go Mm -hmm. and do something else. Like, I drop books all the time. (laughs) just fully in the knowledge that maybe if i kept reading it it would get better but like if i'm not reading it specifically for a video or if i'm not you know if i'm just reading it of my own time or leisure or if i'm like you know i don't or if or if i'm reading it and i don't think that i'm going to end up talking about it that much and i can't really see a point and I'm not enjoying it. I'll just be like, nah, I don't, I don't feel <laughs> like I need to finish this because for I sure. have other thing. I have so many other things that I want to read, watch, play, etc. That I feel like I can just move on. And you know, somebody could tell come along and tell me, oh, if you were just stuck with it for a few more chapters, it would have gotten really, really good, and I think you would have really, really enjoyed it. And I'm like,
2: yeah, you know, that's probably true, but I uh, don't care. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's definitely fair. And like I you know, I'm not advocating for every single person out there to like knuckle through everything they're not enjoying. Yeah, I, I, I totally don't think that's healthy necessarily. Yeah.
1: Uh, and I'm not from- advocating to just drop everything as soon as you stop enjoying it. I'm just kind of yeah. like, you know, have a certain tolerance but don't, like, make huge concessions for your levels of tolerance.
2: <laughs> oh, for sure. I just, yeah. I more or less, I think I take the stance that I take with my own personal readings of things. And just, I mean, books are a great example, but games are. Like, I often, I, I've come to realize that I enjoy the process of understanding a work and, like, seeing it as it is and, like, kind of devoid or not devoid, but separated from like my personal feelings for it. Like I enjoy this process for me. Reading is not just escapism or is not just like chasing things that I like. A lot of it is okay. I have decided to invest in this piece of media to see what it's trying to do. And like, whether or not I bounce off of it is like something that's personal to me, but I enjoy the process of like going through seeing what at least it is trying to say before I, not even make a judgment call. Like that's not the right way to phrase it. But like before I personally decide where I land on it and uh, obviously that is not something that everyone should do for everything. There's plenty of media that I have just avoided and that people are like, oh, it gets so good. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. I'm not interested. Like I think there's a difference between like struggling through something you're not interested in and instead like struggling through something you're interested in but isn't gelling with you necessarily like that figuring out where that interest is i think is like the real deciding factor on whether or not i stick with something but it has part, also part of, led yeah. me it's like led me out of my comfort zone in a way that has like enriched a lot of my media experience in a way that I probably wouldn't have been able to enrich it in the past. And I found some of my favorite things this way that I originally bristled up against and did not like and then, like, reread them multiple times and then was like, holy crap, this is my favorite thing in the world.
1: Yeah. Uh, me, me, like, my, my, my thing with books and why I have this attitude with books, I think, specifically, is that I am so sensitive to, like, prose quality If the Uh prose of a book is good, I will probably (laughs) enjoy it even if the characters and setting and plot are absolute nonsense. But if the prose of a novel is bad or boring, I will struggle through it even if I like the story and the characters. So like, I think that I have a pretty good gauge for how good a book's prose is. Although I do still acknowledge that I have my own tastes when it comes to prose. It's not like I don't like a book and I'm like, aha, I have definitive proof (laughs) that the writing is bad. But generally speaking, prose quality remains relatively consistent throughout most of an individual novel. Like, it's very, very rare that I think I, I... In fact, I don't think I've ever come across a book where it starts out with the prose quality of like your... of, of like, a below-average YA fiction and then Uh suddenly spikes up into classic literary poetry halfway through. (laughs) It's hard to
2: read a book where one chapter is just suddenly written at a lower, like, you know, comprehensive prose reading or writing level. Yeah, unless it's like it's it's a
1: very intentional change in the prose style. And my favorite example of that is always like Robbie Arnott, where he deliberately, uh, in his book Flames, he deliberately like switched out the writing style and the perspective, Mm -hmm. and even the like the pace and the structure of the way he told the story. Um, Every single chapter of that book, Uh Um, and even the tense. Some chapters are written in present tense, some in past. Um, some in third person some in first and so on and um, and like but it's very very obvious that that's what he's doing so when I get to a chapter that's like you know written in this way way simplified style I'm like very clearly this is a choice and I'm supposed yeah. to try and interpret it right or but even like, House of Leaves you know from,
3: <laughs> yeah. every perspective um, has a different
0: style and the whole chapter is basically a technical document about an analysis yeah. strategy <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm not going to defend Johnny Truant's segments in that book because <laughs> I fucking nobody enjoys those and the people who enjoy those kind of enjoy them ironically. They're like, oh, it's so great. It's like it's like the H-Bomber guy thing of, it's so great how badly this is written on purpose <laughs> or something. You know, let me tell you why this thing that's bad is good actually because being bad is good on purpose, which is legit, but also in the context of like House of Leaves, I got. What it was trying to do pretty early on, and then the rest of it is just like, oh, here, back to the bad bit again. <laughs> 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 uh, let me let me just tread water on this bit, but before while waiting for it to get back to the scary house, and then like <laughs> later on, the bit that's to ab- absolutely taking the piss is that um, I'm not going to spoil much, but there's like one line of Johnny Truant where he's writing out. You know, you're probably skipping all of my sections, aren't Uh, you?
2: (laughs) I knew you were going to bring up this section. That's the thing that I think about all the time, where the the footnotes begin to diverge from what they're even saying, and he's just like, I'm just writing to write, like, at this point. Like, I know you're not reading. Fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, that's just
1: absolutely taking the piss. Um, (laughs) Little
0: did he know I read all of his chapters. The chapter I skipped was the one about Echoes. (laughs)
1: Oh man, that's such a good
3: chapter.
0: Though. I literally could not, like, <laughs> Like, it goes back that, to that like. That wasn't even written, but that wasn't even written. Potential ADHD Johnny, wasn't that? diagnosis in the future, symptom number 75 <laughs> or whatever, but like, I'm, I literally could not read the Echoes chapter. I It was like trying to read uh, like, the textbooks that, wasn't, that, wasn't, that I would read that I never read in college that I was assigned that to read. That uh, wasn't
1: Johnny Truant, though. That wasn't that Zampano? Yeah, that was, yeah, a, that was uh, Zampano. Uh, Zampano. I read but, every yeah, Truant yeah, one chapter. I read every yeah.
0: <laughs> really, issue with yeah. giant train i'm like wow pretty rapey
1: <laughs> Could <Can> you stop <laughs> yeah you, i know, I know me but this, also need you i'm to tell pretty me sure this he's thought. just a i'm pretty sure he's just a fucking liar though yeah, like, yeah, like he's, literally he's the an first... edge lord
0: trying to shock you and i'm like
1: all right yeah 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 <laughs> literally the first story he tells the reader is of him making shit up to impress someone else. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I read that, I was like, all right, he's oh, an unreliable narrator. I get it.
2: <laughs> One of my favorite video essays about house of leaves is Nightmind's alleged analysis of, of house of leaves. And I won't spoil well, I, the, alleged the analysis of that series, but I, as much as I think there are flaws with it, I think that, the trick it plays, and I won't get into what that trick is, is extraordinarily clever and very funny, especially oh. in the context of that book. It's funny, I, to, me, it was I funny dro- to me that I like... dropped
1: Nightmine's videos, no joke, because I the biggest pet peeve of mine, the single biggest, mm-hmm. is uh, video essayists who just summarize the thing they're yep. talking about. And it Nightmine's videos were that. For mm-hmm. a long time, and I don't think I got to the bit where mm-hmm. like there's this trick or whatever that you're mentioning. Because yes, the only thing I remember from Nightmi- trying to watch Night videos was I could just go read House of Leaves.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, his his House of Leaves videos are they are playing a trick, and it is a very mean spirited trick. So I do not advise sitting through it if you find them tiring. Because you get the point that he is making if you find it tiring. That is what I will say about those videos. But uh, Nightmind definitely, I think he has issues with some of his content. And like a lot of it is exactly what you're saying. It's just summary content. But uh, without getting too deeply into it, I actually do like a lot of Nightmind's content as a previous ARG player. People don't know this about me, but when I was a teenager, I was actually involved in a lot of ARGs, alternate reality games, and there was never a very good historical archival like
1: yeah, system
2: I- for ARGs, so I do appreciate that he goes through and archives and summarizes them, but that's more for a like an academic purpose, I think, because yeah. no one else is archiving them. Uh, I will say so, as somebody
1: who doesn't enjoy ARGs, I do enjoy Nightmind's videos about ARGs, but I yeah. know that I am the kind of person where if I actually did play ARGs, I probably wouldn't enjoy Nightmines yes. because I would yes. just go and play the ARGs myself. And it's the same yes. thing where like, you know, I because I had read House of Leaves, I enjoyed Nightmind's video on it far less yes. than if I had yeah. no interest in yeah. House of Leaves and just use Nightmind's yeah. videos as a for me, proxy for it. For the Nightman video was just an,
0: uh, an uh-oh moment because, as you might remember, uh, it heavily, 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 heavily fixates on the Echoes chapter for the entirety of it itself, it which does. was a real uh-oh <laughs> moment for me where I'm like, uh, I may have not gotten this book because I could not just could not literally read that chapter it was impossible like I, I could not do it like I got the rest of the book fine I could not read that chapter like I enjoyed like as a video essayist I was getting a real kick out of the fact that it's like it's like two separate layers of fiction and then a third layer of what is essentially just a video essay script, like about the other chapter, the other (laughs) chunk of the story. Like the Zampano bits are just the kind of stuff I liked. Like I I didn't make any video essays yet at the time, I think, but obviously I've been consuming them consistently since like 2012 or some shit. Uh, I tried to make a, a Resident Evil one back in like 2013 and gave up, uh, so like that was a very like zampana was very entertaining to read except for the part where you have like a fucking like english lit textbook chapter that i just was so yeah. technical in nature that i just could not hold any of it in my head yeah. long enough to like i was constantly starting pages over and just being like i'm not yeah i'm not absorbing any of this i literally I get halfway through a sentence and i just want to think about something else
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you you might seriously enjoy S, uh, because S yeah. is kind of similar to House of Leaves in that Ship it's like several different layered. Yeah, the Ship of Theseus one, where there's like several yeah, yeah. different layered stories, except um, except it's like way more fun. Um, and it's less, and that like nothing in the book is written specifically to annoy you. Like yeah. very clearly, Johnny's Johnny's sections are written to test people's patience, and <laughs> yeah. some some of the Zampano bits, I think, are also written to try and test people's patience. And you know, there are some there is some stuff in S that I have criticisms of, obviously, because it's not a perfect novel. But at the very least, everything in the book is written with the purpose to entertain you. So it's not like you're yeah. going to have to feel yeah. like you're going to force yourself to slog through a bit that was written to be bad on purpose. Um, so like, funnily enough,
0: funnily enough, I own a copy of S for the same reason I own a copy of House of the Leaves, which is that when I had a PO box with Andrew back at the old place, uh, someone sent both of them to me at the same time. <laughs> They sent me them yeah. together, and so I don't. And yeah. It took me like four years to read House of Leeds Finally, and I still have S with an unbroken seal just sitting on my shelf. Like one day, I have yeah. so many. I, I was so, I was so excited
1: <laughs> when I saw it on your shelf. I like what part of a message yeah, to you was yeah. like, "Oh my God, you read, you've read S," and you were like, "No, uh-huh. I haven't. I'm a fraud." <laughs> I, <laughs> I, went, I was a big day, fan.
2: One, one I, last thought, note, I thought I'm you a...
1: must have because I saw it on like two different shelves in the background of your video and I was like, clearly he's moved it oh. to be on camera so he wants people to know he's read it. Uh,
0: I think I just like had a different scheme at one point where I just had to reorganize things to fit something. Like once upon a time I had a Junji Ito yeah. square and it still is, but the Junji Ito has become so expansive it cannot be contained in one square anymore and I have to like figure out how to like layer them yeah. to put, like i have to book capacity.
1: Uh-uh. Literally earlier we were talking about like authorial intent and how certain things are just mistakes and it's like there's yeah. there's me assuming that you deliberately put s in the background <laughs> of two no. different videos. Yeah, things are
0: only intentional in my background if I if the cover is visible.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Like
0: I even put Pantone the-, the board game on my shelf in the last video as an Amazing.
1: inside joke, <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> just to fuck with people that know.
2: One, I'm going to have things... to fucking
1: play at Astra so, just so that I can watch that fucking video. <laughs>
2: <laughs> one of the last things I wanted this to say ahead. about the, the, uh, the nightmare video before we move on is just, uh, I think a, a good way of describing this is actually gets back to a point we were making earlier, which is that I think the thesis of that video and why I think it's really interesting in relation to House of Leaves is uh, the thesis is basically uh, don't take people's word for what things mean even if they appear to have credibility and a platform that is credible if you don't also yeah look at (laughs) what they're saying from a critical lens uh, i think it's clever i think it's clever to to make that statement in relation to house of leaves uh, because I think that that's one of the big things that House of Leaves is also saying is like, what is the veracity of information when all you have is a unverifiable source? And that's pretty cool. Uh, and it's funny that we bring this up in in relation to, you know, video essays and discourse on the internet and things like that because it's like, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all just like people who are just like shouting into the void, right? Like, even with credibility, You can still be fallible and uh, it's a very hard line to walk like trying to track uh, how consistent or how true uh, interpretations of these different pieces of media or even interpretations of like authorial intent can be um, when the people who are consuming the media are consuming the discussion of it by proxy or as proxy for the media itself. Uh, which is a uniquely internet thing i think to discuss nowadays because uh as we were saying earlier tons of people participate I'm sorry, in sorry you might need to reconnect Without actually oh is my is my voice going weird or i don't know, were you hearing that or was it just me <laughs> uh no i was
1: hearing him is go it, weird as well hello again yeah okay yeah. is this better
2: am i good is yeah it was getting no increasingly
1: hard because uh, of like where did i drop internet. off
0: Distortion. Uh I followed most of it, but it was gotcha. just it was edging towards like where I'm gonna get in trouble here if <laughs> you just let him keep going. I'm not gonna be able to follow oh. this soon. Gotcha. It was degrading.
1: Uh, Alright, now you're now you're sounding weird to me too. righty, <laughs> Clicky is, is, is is <laughs> my connection se-
2: Hello. you're you're beautiful Speck- and clear, oh, okay. Cuckoo. Uh, but yeah, oh, I guess what I'm funny, saying is just given, like given yeah, the great.
0: internet situation. <laughs>
1: Get, 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 yeah thanks tony abbott not to get too deep into australian <laughs> politics but every every time there's an internet trouble in this country i say thanks tony abbott <laughs> uh because he uh, he uh, gutted the nbn rollout um Ugh. yeah <laughs> that was ages that yeah was like i mean i think it's interesting ago. right <laughs>
2: but that's because because we're in an age of discourse and people talk about whatever and- It's hard to figure out where people are and what things stand for when 95% of people are just engaging with something by proxy of other things, right? People don't actually read or watch or play the things they want to discuss the most. They just kind of parrot other people's opinions about them. So uh, it's just funny. Oh, yeah,
0: it's an ongoing joke during it's becoming an ongoing joke during our streams to be like, oh, yeah, I also watched that video.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a
0: it was a genuine fear I had in that talking about B Stars, tons of people talked about B Stars already. Talking about the Monster Hunter movie, tons of videos about the Monster Hunter movie. Being the person who not only has the highest profile analysis of Ad Astra an indie project, but also introduces a lot of people to it while giving my interpretation of it, that can quickly threaten to become the canonical understanding of what the entire thing is and means even though it's just i'm just a dude who looked at a thing and thought about these things and that's all it is like every now and then i'll search (laughs) my name in the echo discord just to see the ways that stuff around me is coming up because it's common enough and you get a lot of hits about a certain fox and echo that's named keith as but aside from that uh, there's a there's a bunch of stuff about people <laughs> discussing the Legoshi video or the Ad Astra video or whatever happened in a Let's Play recently or whatever. And in particular, I noticed people have really latched on to the reverse dating sim point from Ad Astra. Yeah. It has been repeated in that Discord at least a dozen times. And it's like both flattering and worrying at the same time because it feels like people... Like my opinion about the thing becomes the canonical. That's just what the story is, man. and that's what he was always going for, even though he never said whether I was on the right track about any of that stuff or not. And it's just it's very strange yeah. that when you are the pop when you become this widespread opinion about a thing, like you the you're the loudest voice essentially about it, that becomes you become the authority on it, which is often not what any of us are even trying to do when we make videos about things.
1: We just yeah. want to nerdily info. Oh, I absolutely <laughs> was trying to become an authority on Gothic <laughs> literature. Um, n- no, I oh, like, usually we just, <laughs> we're just trying to, to nerdily info dump. Nobody was, talk- nobody was talking about like. it, and no, no, me, 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 so I, I went and actually like interviewed S J Orset. I'm not going to publish it uh-huh. because it turns out it w- wasn't like that relevant to the video that I made. Um, but like one of the, I asked him about like, has he kept up with like, the topic and he's like no since 1997 <laughs> after i published it i've not actually thought that much about gothic literature at all and he's now basically mostly just a video game scholar yep um but like you know a b- old school one so he hasn't like kept up with like loot yep. box discourse or whatever he's very much still interested <laughs> in like systems of hypertext and how you can sort of construct things um and so i kind i kind of in reading his book and then in actually going and reading a whole bunch of ergodic literature and doing that for for like a video i started to realize oh god have i actually become like the only expert on this fucking niche ass <laughs> topic that even the guy who even the guy who first proposed <laughs> it hasn't paid attention to it in, o- in over 20 years um but like hey man, but like, maybe I you up- have Saying to people, I, I, yeah, but I ended up saying to people that I inadvertently became a <laughs> expert on a Gothic literature out of spite to <laughs> House of Leaves fans, which is funny because I b- because I like House of Leaves, but I just hate how people talk about it because Same. like I felt like the only person on Earth when when I was like looking at what people were saying about it because the story of it was that a friend recommended the book to me and I had recognized the recommendation because other people are like you might be interested in house of leaves it's a really really weird book and eventually a friend recommended it to me and then I was like all right I fine I guess I'll finally go and fucking read this book and then I read it and I was like this is so bizarre and unique why are there no other books like this and then I thought Maybe uh-huh. I should look for other books like this. And then looked around and the first things that turned up were just people saying, oh my God, House of Leaves is so unique. No other book is like this. It's the most unique thing ever made. And then I look e- a little bit further and it turns out there are heaps of books like like this. And there's an entire genre that some people call gothic literature. And then I look up what ergodic literature is and I find S ben J. Orset's stuff. And so I get really, really irritated at how like... House of Leaves is like the only example of this thing that people know and end up be- in inad- and so I tell people I inadvertently became a expert on the genre out of spite <laughs> to House of Leaves fans and then and then <laughs> And then, like two weeks before my video goes live, fucking um, super eye patch wolf publishes uh-huh. a video <laughs> in which he starts talking. He, he, he in which part he's like the liminal spaces video, where the last section of it is just him talking about how cool and unique and spooky House of Leaves is. And I'm just like, good fucking god! I wish I had gotten <laughs> my video out before super eye patch wolf had published his. I don't well, know hey, if he's. I, Pretty sure he hasn't seen my video, but like, you know, I, I it was exactly the type of thing that I was trying to respond to. And what's even funnier is that like a week after um, Super White Purchase Wolf published that, fucking another booktuber I follow man-carrying thing who also doesn't know I exist published a video called why is the internet so obsessed with House of Leaves yeah and (laughs) and he's just talking about how he doesn't like the book and how people overrate it and then my video comes out where I'm just like House of Leaves is cool but have you heard of all of these other books
2: yeah just this bizarre spike funny.
0: House of of Leaves discourse years after it's
1: released
2: (laughs) House of Leaves is yeah I house of leaves is just evergreen yeah, like, that's what I, it boils I, I down to
1: time- <laughs> yeah. yeah either i timed this extremely well or i timed it extremely poorly and i don't know which one yet in marketing we call it for me. Still not sure. for me, the question is whether anyone on the
0: planet <laughs> has actually read the familiar
2: have i read the familiar movie? no i have not
0: the familiar is the series that mark z daniel daniel has written since 2015 that is five books that are all as long as house of leaves and i posted screenshots in the chat just now like it's more house of leaves nonsense and like he's trying to capitalize on that exact thing i'm sure and put i've never heard anyone mention them i only know about them because i checked like i looked up the author once and saw these listings
2: I have read of Daniel. I have work. heard
1: people mention his other works, but they say that like House of Leaves is his most comprehensible novel, which is yep. funny. <laughs> I've read
2: only Revolutions, the Wallesto letters, and the Fifty Year Sword. Those are the three Daniel things I've read, other than House of Leaves. That is, and I honestly don't remember basically any of them. Only Revolutions was weird it was like a, I, if that's the one I think it is, it's the one that like you flip over and then you read another story and they like meet in the middle, one upside down, one right side up from, Oh, that's fun. Perspective. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, It's kind of, choose your own way to Um, navigate that, I guess. Yeah. I just, I don't remember exactly all of it. I just remembered that I read it like right after reading house of leaves and I wasn't like super into it. Um, but yeah, 50 year swords kind of interesting. Uh, that that one's kind of, I don't know, intriguing is like the best way to put it. But
0: I enjoy a book just having a little trick to it, even if it's really minor. Like bringing up back, like how, like a uh, looking for Alaska. If you read it as a print copy, it has a very specific quirk, which is just the fact that it has a black page, which is visible at all times when you're reading it. And so, at some point like, this is just a textual, this is a, like, the, the meta-textual element of just trying to read this thing is that while you're engaging with this book, at some point, inevitably, you are going to just clue into this black page and turn to it. And you're gonna wonder what the fuck it is. And it, all it says is after. And you're like, what the fuck is that? And then and, and that's a bit, it's a bit of a suspense builder. That's just an interesting way that, to play with the format specifically that you can't translate to other formats directly because you don't see a a game in front of you, the way you see a book in front of you. Uh every chapter, instead of being called chapter whatever, is called one hundred like 127 days before. And it's just counting down to that the black page. And it's like that is not the core of I mean actually it is the core of the book to a large I mean it is about the before and after of what that page represents. But like It's just a really minor trick you can add to add a really strange sense of like pacing and suspense to the entire thing where things that otherwise don't like unrelated scenes that are not about building tension are still a part of this ongoing like road that are taking you towards just this looming question of what's going to happen when you hit the black page and it's like that's just kind of like a strange little unique experience you can have with that book and it's just kind of fun when books do anything like that instead of just be like, a book is a series of linear script and that's all that it is. And you just, this is merely a vessel for my script that was not, that does not take formatting into account of any kind. And like,
1: but like, obviously, House yeah. Leaves is like, what if all <laughs> formatting? <laughs> yeah. No, there, there was like, A particular book where i think it i can't even remember what the book was i just remember that like the opening chapter featured some like sassy ya protagonist performing like you know assassin's creed style climbing a building to sneak in um in a fantasy (laughs) setting and it was describing the actions in a way where i was reading it with my friends and i just turned to my friend and said like this reads like a movie script that didn't get approved <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and it's like oh i'm i'm right i'm putting this in a in, into a book as a concession for the fact that i will never make a movie <laughs> or something like that and, and this stuff varies like, and how much know, people they-
0: tolerate it or are encouraged by it varies and whatnot like i don't know if you've heard of will grayson yeah, will grayson i will th-
1: Oh, uh, I attempted yeah. <laughs> reading that. I didn't like it. it was... Yeah. No, my, my relationship with John... Yeah, my relationship with John Green is a bit odd because, like, I really, really loved Looking for Alaska. I really, really hated Paper Towns. And then I was kind of both ways on, uh, on The Fault in Our Stars. Um, and then I think I was probably just worn out when I tried reading Will Grayson, Will Grayson, so I didn't finish it. And I also didn't particularly like David Levithan's Uh, sections either Um, and then I think the reason why I even made the video on uh, on Turtles All The Way Down is because I was just like I'm so frustrated by John Green but in a way that's like very particular to me that I have to make a video about it um, because otherwise I was like very, very, um, I was very, very, will. other than that, I was very, very willing to just sort of leave John Green to John Green fans and just go, this isn't for me. Yeah. You can have John Green. I will, I will let you be. Cause I don't think he's a bad writer. I think he's a fine writer, but he's just, his writing is like, not my thing in a way that's like very particular to me. There's a, there's an <laughs> element know. of like,
0: <laughs> this is all very funny cause this is, this is a, because <laughs> I'm a hack, uh, there's a cut chapter in the Ad Astra video <laughs> where I specifically contrast Howley's writing style with John Green's <laughs> writing style. <laughs> and this is an ongoing thing where I, yeah. I never want to write, I, th- I never want to make a video about a book. And it's because I think I'm a terrible, I think <laughs> I'm a terrible, uh, even though I technically did make a video about a book, kind of. Uh, I think I'm a terrible uh reviewer of books because i feel like i process books the way that people i don't like the opinions of process movies where not not like weird (laughs) not, not like weird reactionary takes but like people who have incredibly boring takes about movies like they're just like they just have these really like ruby sort of like layman reactions of like just yeah, it's was, it was pretty fun, or it's like oh, this is boring. Switch CG, or like that's all I really have to say about anything. And it's just it's like non-reactions and there's no discussion to be had about like what happened in the movie or what the authorial intent is. Like, I have had multiple car rides. And you're, like, where worried Stephanie... that you're going to become the Jeremy Johns yeah. of books. It's just like people are like, oh, yeah, I like the music and the colors and the costumes. Versus like me and like me and Stephanie have had multiple car rides where we break back into discussing joker again because we're like what the fuck was the intent like is that supposed to be the author insert like are they is that a point we're supposed to agree with but it's made by the guy that does this two seconds later so like what the fuck is like you can actually get into discussion about a movie uh for me the entirety of books is that like it's like it's such an attention thing to get through them that like it's entirely devoid it's entirely based on the writing style of the author so like i got through artemis and the martian because i loved the way that that writer wrote those books and i got through john and i, I get through john green and hank green books so easily because i am absolutely vibing with the entirety of how they phrase everything and it's like it's very funny because john green books in particular refuse to have a plot like almost ever They are usually at most making one very specific point like Paper Towns is. uh, But it's entirely just dwelling in this very specific writing style that is echoed in a way in the way that they also do their vlogs and other scripted content all the time that they've been doing forever. And so, like, the way I knew that I was hooked forever was the fact that John Green made The Anthropocene Reviewed, where he just every chapter is just kind of him waxing philosophical and, and nostalgically about a thing and he just brings out a beauty in things and a perspective in things and phrases it in a way that is so entertaining to read through from me that, yes, there's a chapter about hot dogs. Like, it's a chapter about a specific hot dog stand. And that's the entire chapter. <laughs> and the Anthropocene Reviewed is not... There's no through line except for the general theme of what the the point of the thing is. But, like, it's not... This is not a narrative. It is not build. The hot dogs do not come up later. And they are not foreshadowed because that's not how that it's like a, that's like a the whole thing is essentially a uh an anthology of chapters about things and i fucking ate that book up it was fantastic i had a great time <laughs> because of just purely from the way it's written
2: uh, yeah i mean for i'm kind of a similar way like i on one hand i really like super heady like deep nuanced novels that are like hard to fully understand and appreciate, but you need really specific context to like them and stuff like that. Like I like the literary literary stuff out there, but I also really just like pulpy fiction. So like I, I'm sure I could get into serious lit crit if I tried, but at the same time I'm like, is it really worth it for me to do that? Because, like, on one hand, my favorite series of novels ever is Gene Wolfe's Book of the New Sun, which are known for being, like, difficult to understand. The first time I read them, I had no fucking clue what was happening. And it, like, went back to go through them and really enjoyed them and, and mind uh, meaning out of them. But then on the other hand, like, I really like Stephen King's stuff just because it's, like, enjoyable and readable. <laughs> and I like the connected universe and all those things. And... I've read more Star Wars expanded universe fiction than like most people would consider, uh, you can healthy. do, you, you can do like, the
0: fucking 17 hour video. That's like a holistic review of the Star Wars canon.
2: <laughs> I would rather die. <laughs> <than> <laughs> talk about Star Wars on the my YouTube discourse channel.
0: singularity.
2: But, uh, but you know what I mean? Like I, so I, like on one hand, like I do really like the lity lit crit Litty stuff that, you know you could talk about but at the same time like i also just like you know the dark tower <laughs> like there's that's all there is to say about it i don't have I, incredibly I, insightful things to say about literature i don't think i i i
1: am not like exclusively a uh, hard lit guy (laughs) like and i also refuse to be called a literary critic i am a book Uh reviewer (laughs) anyone who anyone who seriously self-identifies as a literary critic is like some pretentious asshole but Uh um and it was like, yeah, I'm 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 so smart and cultured and whatever, but like, <laughs> but like, but like, you know, my favorite fantasy novel is Dragon Charm, which is literally like the most generic fantasy you've ever read, except all the characters are dragons, and I bet you can guess why <laughs> I appreciate that book.
2: Um, not oh, yeah, Graham so Edwards. Like, I see.
1: Graham, yeah, don't read the sequels. Um, the. <laughs> The, the, yeah, no, I, I, um, am always like insisting that you don't need to like approach books as like this highly intellectual activity or whatever, that you can just, you know, approach them for fun and entertainment. And that's like a big part of the thing. I want more. I, it always like breaks my heart whenever I hear somebody say something like, Uh, I don't think I'd be good enough to be a book reviewer or a book critic I'm like I'm not good enough to be a book (laughs) critic I I still do it anyway people disagree with my opinions all the time Um, Mm -hmm. but like like, you know it's not like some highly intellectual activity where you like need to memorize the entire of like literary canon and the fucking literary history because I don't I haven't learned all of that shit I'm still learning about that it's I mean, just at, a, that, like, at a certain I,
2: point, it's impossible, right? Like, there's so many yeah, books.
1: Too, there's too much. There's like a Matthew Matosis video where he laments <laughs> that, like, you know, we're reaching a point in video game history where, you know, it's not possible for a new video game critic to have played all the classics. But, yep. you know, he doesn't. And, you know, it used to be that a video game critic even if they hadn't, it could have at least been possible for one really, really, um, you know, in that's uh, 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 the word I'm looking for, um, Ridden. ambitious. No, yes. yes, for some really, really ambitious video game critic to play every single classic. But we've probably moved beyond that point by now, and it's not possible yeah. for a the historiography video yeah. of, of video yeah.
2: gaming is is now becoming more fragmented because there's yeah there's and, much and you less get people who like specialize
1: in specific genres rather than be like a mm-hmm. a expert of a video games as a whole but you kind yeah. of already see that with like literature like when i was in uni yeah. i read a lot of like um you know academic literary stuff which let me tell you, there's no faster way to convince yourself that you don't want to be an academic yeah. <laughs> literary critic than reading the shit that they write. Um, but they specialize in like time periods and genres mm-hmm. like you can if you want to be a, uh, you know, a literary academic who specializes in like romance from 1800 to 1850. <laughs> yeah. Like yep. you can be that specific of uh, of a of an expert. Um if you want. Or you can go broad or whatever, but it's like, you know, the 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 medium of books is big enough and has been around for long enough that it's you're never going to be like an expert on just books. You're going to be an expert on a specific segment of books, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah because yeah. there's infinite and th-
1: <laughs> there's just infinite in every field infinite
0: books infinite indie games like it's just a deluge
1: yeah you're not going to you're not going to consume everything
0: now we have self publishing
2: oh well, yeah my my food just got here so i going to need to bail we're an hour overdue to probably <laughs> quit for this
1: <laughs> oh, but, listen we've uh, given you plenty of yeah. get plenty of content yeah just,
0: <laughs> maybe you know the maybe more next content, time we'll the talk better. about free conventions or something <laughs>
3: sure
2: yeah all right uh, well thanks so much for for hanging out this has been a good time thanks for no watching worries. everybody
0: you can check out i close the tabs <laughs> i'm
1: so good at, I'm so good at my job uh you can just, check out this fucking guy at whatever youtube channel <laughs> he he runs yeah you can, you can uh, check you know, out just, cloud just,
0: cuckoo country that Cloud cuckoo. I'll just put the links in the description. That's always the smart thing to do. <laughs> and what, in like yeah. what toaster your Twitch is, Toasted Ringtail?
2: Toasted Ringtail. Yeah, that's me.
0: Watch more Let's Plays than you have time for and listen about books and participate in book club. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do it.
3: Do it. All right. <laughs> all right. See you all, all right, next time. Thanks, thanks, everyone. Good, goodbye. goodbye. <laughs>